Your Total Wine & More store is ready to serve you with our always low prices on an incredible 8,000 wines and 2,500 beers. Want it today? Try our same-day delivery or contactless curbside pickup at TotalWine.com. Whether you're grabbing your favorite beer or pouring a glass to enjoy an evening on the deck, Total Wine & More has you covered. Visit any of our 12 stores in Northern Virginia. We had a milestone this past week. One million downloads. Thanks to everyone who's helped make 2015 an amazing first full year for Astonishing Legends. Yes, we are truly grateful. If you'd like to support the show, please visit patreon.com slash astonishinglegends and learn about ways to help us keep things going. Well, in addition, if you're really curious to see what we actually look like... Yeah, we get ready for disappointment. <laughs> there's a fun little video there that we made explaining what Patreon is. And you don't have to be a contributor to see it, and it may or may not contain a Sasquatch. Uh, you know what? We never properly thanked our director on the Patreon video. Oh, that's right. Yes. Sam Macon was our director, and our director of photography on it was Travis Eau Claire, And we also had the help of the lovely and talented artist and illustrator, Stacy Rosich. Thank you guys so much for your help. We couldn't have done it without you. Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. The secessionists of El Monte are only awaiting the withdrawal of the troops from Los Angeles before they commence operations. Edwin A. Sherman, editor of a San Bernardino County newspaper, in a letter to Union Army General E.V. Sumner, commander of the U.S. Pacific Division. Join us tonight as we conclude our analysis of the Knights of the Golden Circle with a visit to the Lost Dutchman Mine and ask the question, is their great treasury still being guarded to this day? So let's take a look back at parts one and parts two of this three-part series on the KGC. In the first part, just a brief recap, we talked a little bit about the environment in the country. What, as you would say, what's your favorite word? Fomenting. What's, yeah. What, <laughs> what, what, what conditions fomented these lines of thought and the resulting actions? Exactly. Politically, people coming into states that are just kind of new, being developed by yes. the people who live there. A lot of things are unsettled. And so we covered all of that kind of information. And then in part two, we talked a little bit more about the specifics of operations, how the system might have conducted itself. We talked about Jesse James and these warriors of the Knights of the Golden Circle, for lack of a better word. Right. And I think we're trying to give a scope then uh, in part two of like, well, how much money are we talking about? If it's a jar of coins found in grandpa's backyard, maybe that's $10,000. Maybe it's 50. But we're talking millions here. Yeah. Possibly. A much bigger picture than just finding some jar that Uncle Fred buried, for, you know, <laughs> because he was nervous about the banking system. So the point here we're trying to make is that, yes, there are some jars and strong boxes that are very valuable in the valuation of those times. But also, these all lead to a spider web of maybe even bigger caches buried more intricately and possibly guarded. Yeah, and the spider web actually is almost a literal visualization of an overlay of a treasure map that you can put. When you find these little caches, they lead to bigger and bigger things. And some of these outlays or these caches or hoards are thought to be several square miles in terms of their overall scope. And that's that's something we're going to get more specific on tonight. And then we talked about in the last one, and it might be a tall tale, the whole story about Emperor Maximilian in Mexico <laughs> surviving his execution and rewarding not only the Knights of the Golden Circle, but Jesse James with millions of dollars from his treasure. You know what's interesting to me about that whole thing is that in Jesse James is one of his names, 
the, a book that has been, you know, both revered and maligned at the same time. <laughs> Written by Del Schrader. Yes. Right? yes. And uh, Jesse James III, also known as Orvis Lee Hoke, who claims that he was the real Jesse James's uh, grandson. Yes. Right, because – and that's the other confusing thing. There's a bunch of Jesse Jameses out there. That's right. So, yeah. Uh, but – and again, that's a that's kind of a bigger, tall tale and possibly the source. It would be of, of millions. Now, the amount of money to me seems a little high. Well, and one of the things that I don't understand why they mentioned it – in the Maximilian story, they talk about how Maximilian knew some Aztecs, <laughs> like, <laughs> right. like they're standing in a dark alley with a yeah. trench coat, yeah. who knew where the Aztec treasure was that was hidden away from the conquistadors when they came to – right. they, they left to get reinforcements and a lot of bags to carry gold in. Yeah. And they came back and everything – all the riches were gone, famously disappeared uh, from multiple sites. But yeah. and, and, there, and it's thought that one of those sites is possibly what wound up on Oak Island. And that treasure remains unfound to this day. If the legend is true. In part two, if Maximilian lived, what they don't mention in Jesse James is one of his names is whether or not when they helped extract his riches from Mexico, whether or not the Aztec treasure was part of it or not. Which gets to that whole, you know, it's so funny. Forrest, folks, Forrest forced me to watch National Treasure 2. <laughs> what did he force you? Yeah, I was not. It deals with the subject. I okay, wanted not to watch maybe Bridge of Spies. <laughs> because, we, you know, we have yeah. some screeners here. We get yeah. early release on these uh, screeners because well, he does, my wife's yeah. in the biz. Yeah, but the, I wanted to watch Bridge of Spies. And Forrest, no, you know, we got, we're still working on the KGC. We should, we should watch something, you know, National Treasure 2. And I was like, yeah, that one's supposed to be really bad, isn't it? It wasn't. Yeah, well, it, look, it follows in the uh, it follows in the same vein. Now, did you, Spoiler like, alert. Did, did you like the first one? Yeah, I enjoyed the first one. Well, because there's a lot of little tidbits that do tie historically in. But, I mean, it's you know, bubblegum. Yeah, it's but, a bubblegum version of... Right, obviously. and I forewarned you, but because in a screenplay, you'll get some, you know, writers will find interesting tidbits in history and alternative history, which are very interesting. And of course, then... It goes through several revisions of notes from studio executives, and next thing you know, it's Boy, like they're on a they're you know they're in a cave on a on a giant tilt a whirl. Yes, you know. But the points that I wanted to because uh, I had not seen it uh, since it came out, but I just wanted to see. I'm proud to say I hadn't seen it. Well, <laughs> <laughs> there are things though that it hits upon that are discussed in these Lincoln and treasure hunting and KGC forum groups that are actually real. Now, yeah, pre- whether whether they t- prove to be true or the connections that they make, whether in the film or these, you know, people who are just kind of part-time historians, remains to be seen. You're talking about a secret organization. We always stress this. I but, mean, and this is a yeah. spoiler alert on National Treasure 2. At the end of National Treasure 2, they uncover a huge hidden room behind Mount Rushmore that not only <laughs> has like the city of El Dorado, basically a golden yeah. Aztec city, not only is it there, but this is one of the things that bothered me. Like, like I should be nitpicking this movie in every way. <laughs> well, yeah, why are you Not only that? is it yeah. there, it was reassembled inside the hole. Like, <laughs> yeah. I mean, when you move the Aztec City, do you put it back together? Is it like the London I Bridge? Live, I don't know. You don't leave it in crates. And then you have to look, you know, which... You do leave it in crates. But which nostril do you enter to find the uh, hidden treasure? <laughs> See, but no, the point is that this is what I look for when I watch shows. Oh, another good one it would be like, uh, there was a series with uh, Noah Wiley called The Librarian. Oh, yeah, that was a that good was show. Cable. That was cable. And show. what you realize... That, or I'm sorry, uh, Warehouse 13, I think is another I one. I loved Warehouse 13. There's a little bit of truth in all of these. W- when Noah Wiley says, well, I learned the language of the birds in three days, that's a real thing. 
Yeah. Uh, supposedly used by alchemists. So what I'm saying is that, you know, riders, look, they got to get through. They got to deliver something very quickly. They're picking up bits of information that they scour and find and, and uh, or people tell them about. And then they incorporate it into a fast-paced action movie, which yeah. that's 80% of it. But what I'm looking for is, are we going to miss anything? Because I would feel very silly, like, you know, if, no, you're right. if they mention something, it's like, oh, yeah, we didn't even talk about yeah, that. Yeah, that's true. After seeing it again, I think we feel confident that we've covered our we're, <laughs> we've got As the, compared to National Treasure too. Yes, exactly. But we just want to remind everyone that we are uncredentialed. <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean? We're temporary experts. I mean, we're just, you know, we're not Bob Brewer. Well, I do have Demer. a degree in film criticism, so yeah, there you go. Well, yeah, I, have, I do have some credentials, but yeah. not about what we're talking about tonight. Yeah. <laughs> just, but you know what? After uh, It's like anyone else who's really interested in this, and you see this on the treasure, like treasurenet.com, I think is a forum. Yes, for, we uh, wind up at that site all the time. Every time we do an investigation, we wind, when we were dealing with Amelia Earhart and also Oak Island, that when you start digging down onto the internet looking for corroboration and information, you really always, almost always wind up back at TreasureNet in, the, in those forums. Well, there's a lot of people who do research on their own who are adding to this thing, and maybe they have leads that you've not heard of. Now, there was one that we came across that I, I'm not completely certain or believe in the conclusions, as we'll talk about a little bit later here about who was related to who and who may have known whom. But I will say that, yeah, it can turn you on to some very interesting avenues. And then you have to do your own research and you have to make your own conclusions. Yes. Because I that's wanted – very important. Yeah. And, and I wanted to mention this. Scott and I talked very briefly about this uh, right before we started to record in that, look, treasure hunters, it's a certain type of personality. It's a little bit obsessive. You get wound up in it. You research like crazy if, you're, if your heart is really into it. Now, Bob is of that nature, I believe, and his heart is in the right place, that he wants to solve the mystery. He loves tradition and uh, family unity and uh, just the lore of this and wants to solve the mystery for the mystery's sake. Exactly. Yeah, and there's a little bit of gold in there, sure. Yeah. Uh, but he said what, what annoyed him was the attitude of a lot of treasure hunters who just have this I-know-it-all attitude. I know best. Yeah, and I not, think is what he said. Not yeah. only do they know it all or they know best or their theory is the only theory – Additionally, many of them are overzealous and uh, we're, we got to get going. Let's go now. Let's go dig. Let's dig. <laughs> it's it's, it's going to take a day, And right? he's like, this isn't how it works. You know what? But <laughs> folks, if, you, if you've listened to Oak Island, you'll see exactly what we're getting at here in the bigger picture is that somebody gets an idea like, no, 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 this is pirate treasure. Yeah. And they don't want to let go of that because they've invested so much time and energy and money into this line of theory that uh, it's hard for them to look at anything else. And, you know, Bob's the same way. He's got his ideas, but I think he's able to prove his out a little bit more with actually finding stuff, which yes. is the real – which is the proof in the pudding there. Right. And so – and that and that gets back to our original comment here was like what, what, how much money is there? Where is it coming from? One of the other things that was happening in addition to whether the Maximilian thing happened at all or not, we know that they had benefactors from overseas. There were forces overseas that were interested in the concept of the Golden Circle as a business idea and how much they could profit from it. There were all the bank robbers we talked about with Jesse James. Oh, yeah, that's a good note. And I wanted to reiterate this, and I think I, might, I may have mentioned it in part two, is that you may not know how much money they collected in initiation fees or under-the-table donations from uh, very wealthy donors. But what you can find out is how much they stole, because that's recorded. Right. You don't, no, seriously, it's like there's a, there's a, a, there's a couple of uh, Jesse James purported robberies of the trains, 
and they know exactly how much he stole. Well, he does because he <laughs> he filed an insurance claim on it. Yes, it did. Yeah. Which you did mention, I think, in he part two. He stole 400000 no, $440,000 of his own money. Yeah, in coins. Right. Right, which then the insurance claim was paid out by a former Union soldier who owned an insurance company in the Northeast. Well, he was the manager of this, uh, yeah, Connecticut-based insurance company. So it was a little screw you, a little dig at him. Having to get get paid twice. Yeah, and there's yeah. a nod to that robbery on one of the maps that Bob winds up coming across. Uh, in addition to oh. it being verifiable in theory through there records, a, which I don't, right. I have not personally verified that theft. I don't know if there's an actual record of that particular robbery, but it's written down on the map that bore out to have factual information on it. And if I believe, if I'm remembering correctly, that was a map overlay that was supposedly written out by Orvis Lee Houck, also known as Jesse James the Third. And it was told to him, though, by J. Frank Dalton, possibly Jesse Woodson James, the original. Yes, one yes. of the originals. One, one of the, but the, kind of the, the primary original. original, the most exactly. famous of the – if there was two, which they say in Jesse James, one of his names, Jesse Woodson James would be the most famous one of the two. Yes, of course. So, so what's kind of great about it is that he writes this out on a map that he gives to Bob. And as we'll get to a little bit later, Bob's actually able to put this map into use. Which brings us to the crux of tonight's show. One of the most famous lost treasures of all time, the Lost Dutchman Mine of the Superstition Mountains in Arizona. When I was a kid, my grandmother on my dad's side actually lived in Phoenix, in Scottsdale, which is a section Mm. of Phoenix. I went there all the time. I went there, you know, a few times a year anyway to visit her. And I remember being obsessed with the Superstition Mountain. It's the biggest story in Phoenix, at least in the when it, this would have been for me probably the late seventies and then in the eighties. Yeah, well, every, everybody there knows about it. I, I work with a guy named John, a friend of mine that uh, he grew up in Phoenix, and he he asked me about this as a separate story because it's that big of a deal. And I also like the fact that we're killing two birds <laughs> with one stone here. Yeah, is that uh, we can take one legend and tie it in with another. Fairly concretely. Well, it's like you say, everything is connected. Everything is connected. You know, John said growing up, yeah, they used to take uh, hikes there all the time. That's where people go to get away from the heat a little bit, get some elevation. But he asked me if I knew anything about that. And I said, well, you should listen to part three of our (laughs) podcast because we're going to be all about that. Yes, nothing like taking a little hike in a territory which is famous for decapitations. Well, (laughs) that's also... (laughs) Actually, it's not famous. No, but it's also known. No, people know about the lore. And as you'll see here, it's not just some uh, crazy crackpot with a rifle defending what he thinks might be the lost mine treasure from uh, prying eyes or possibly some other defenders, but the heat alone and the scorpions and the rattlers Rattlesnakes, yeah. can all get you. Not only that, you can fall off a uh, an edge of a trail and die and people won't find you for a while. Well, yeah, it's, it's hot in the daytime and it's cold at night. It's the desert. Yeah, we're talking about Fahrenheit degrees reaching 110, 115 in the summer. In the summer. The yeah. only reason, the only time you go there to do any kind of serious work, as we'll talk about, is in the winter. Yeah, you have to. And at that point, it's still warm. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like, no, during the day, it's like any desert. It, 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 gets, it will get cold at night, but it, in the daytime, probably in the winter, it'll, it'll get re- you know, reach up to 80 degrees, 90 degrees Fahrenheit. What we're saying is that all around, for all of these reasons, it's a treacherous place. Yes. Yes. With its own patch of mystery. Well, let's talk about how it got named, the Superstition Mountains, which is what's, what better name? That's such a great name for a mountain range. Yeah, with a lot of <laughs> reason to be superstitious about it. There's yes. a lot of intrigue around it. Well, apparently, you know, some people say, oh, the Pima Indians named it, but it, we don't think they actually named it. The The farmers that were in the area in, the, I think, the 1850s and 60s. Yeah. 
who worked in the area of farming around the base of the superstition who were friendly with local Pima Indians were constantly hearing them tell stories about how they were afraid of it and they wouldn't go there and no one should go there. And so the farmers would say, oh, they're, they're very superstitious about those mountains. So over there by the superstition mountains and it, yeah. and, then, and it wound up taking. And then it wound up ultimately on USGS maps or the – I guess it was a military map the first time. It was called the superstitions in 1870 yeah. on the map. So yeah, that's that, how I got it. It had another name prior to that, right, which we had come across but we can't seem to find well, it. <laughs> well, don't bring that up. We can't find it. <laughs> Why not? Yeah. We can admit it. No, it had – I think it had some other uh, a locally given name. Some people have called it the Salt River Mountains because of Salt oh, River. Oh, yeah. Right you know what? I think you're onto something that re- that rang a bell. What we're saying is that in the 18 – after the Civil War, 1870s, 1880s, there was a great push to map out this vast territory because they knew that it would be important for not only homesteading but mineral finds, a lot of great natural resources. So they were anxious to do this and that was a very, very dangerous occupation. These guys backpacked in – these cartographers, and a lot of them were killed, you know, because there are native peoples who don't want you poking around and, and various other reasons. Not Again, just the climate and the terrain could kill you. It's a very harsh environment. But yes, that's why it was an important time for this map making, because that will play into this mystery quite a bit, these maps of the period. That's right. And so well, let's talk a little bit about the Pima, actually. Or they're also known, I guess, as the Akamel O'Odom. Or Akamel O'Otham? Well, as, a, as I would say, uh, Akamel O'Otham. Okay. Yeah, it was oh, pretty right. good. Like, doesn't have a ring of authenticity. Now, it you know does. what? Yeah, well, was, we're going to get an angry I got, email, though. Well, I got criticized a little bit. But the Mi'kmaq. Mik, Mi'kmaq. 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 But, uh, but I was trying no to put discussion. a soft G on it. And again, I was going off of the uh, what I'd heard announcers, because I know that announcers are coached by producers to say it as correctly as possible. So I, again, our apologies for that. We heard that it's uh, – but you know what? This is what's interesting is that there, I looked on a website that has a catalog of a bunch of different – the native peoples of that area in the North Atlantic there. And if you look at – depending on what area of the tribe you're in and uh, what ge- geographic location, they all say it a little differently. Right. So there's like, just a, there's like four accent. Yeah. I yeah. found four different pronunciations of Mi'kmaq. Uh, Right. Yeah, but sorry, now, I just want to apologize. No, <laughs> yeah. So yeah. It, anyway, those terms that we just said, which Forrest said so much better than I did, uh, roughly translates to the river people, I guess. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because they lived down there by various rivers in the area, and each tribe actually had a little bit of a different name depending on the territory that it occupied. Right. But the, in Pima traditional lore, they have a whole flood myth story, which yeah. is pretty fascinating, actually. We looked that up and Well, there's other it. tribes, and I'd heard this, you know, many, many years ago. Uh, the Hopi have their own flood creation myth, and uh, I think theirs involves a giant raft on which animals were carted onto for safekeeping after the flood. I just find it interesting, though, that so many cultures have this great flood myth. Well, it makes you wonder about the origins and the, yeah. the stories coming down from multiple cultures who don't even speak the same languages. You you have to you know wonder if you have if you're a person that has doubts about those stories or the story of Noah. It is fascinating that multiple cultures that are not necessarily connected all have a similar story of one kind or another. Right, and you know what? There are archetypical aspects to it. If you look up creation myth or or flood myth. And that, you know, there's a hero, there's, there are threats and warnings that are ignored. It, there are things that line up, but why are they so similar? 
and, well, re- and to the respective culture and, and uh, you know location. Well, yeah, and specifically with the Pima myth, which we have a link to it for, in the show notes for this show, so you can go read it. It's actually a pretty short little story that we found repeated on various web pages. Um, I'm sure stolen from somebody who put it together. <laughs> yeah, although it's not indicated. You know, it starts out one day long ago. Great butterfly fluttered down from the clouds to the blue cliffs where two rivers met, later called the Verde and Salt Rivers. There he made man from his own sweat. From that day on, the people multiplied, but in time they grew selfish and quarrelsome. Earthmaker became annoyed with their behavior and decided it might be best to drown all of them. (laughs) Sound familiar so far? Yeah. Yeah. But first he thought to warn them through the voices of the winds. People of the Pima tribe called Northwind. Sky Spirit warns you to be honest with one another and to live in peace from now on. Suha, shaman of the Pimas, interpreted to the people what North Wind had warned them about. And this goes on, and eventually the warnings come down from the East Wind and the South. All the winds are like, you got to get it together. Yeah. Finally, the final message that Suha gets is, you're the only guy around here who's kind of decent. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to get some spruce gum. By the way, I am not making fun of this story. What? Oh, no. Well, I, I want to make it clear that I'm about to make a joke, but yeah. it's not because I think the story is silly okay. or anything like that. But they told him to make a ball out of spruce gum. So basically yeah. kind of a tree ball, which I got to tell you, when I was reading <laughs> yeah. it, reminded me of Groot and right. Guardians of the Galaxy. <laughs> yeah. but, the, but And you're going to float yeah. away in this, get some food in there, and you're yeah. going to be okay. And he did, and he was. And so after the big flood, yeah. which came down to that area... So there's a- you work with what you got, and and what's waterproof? Well, spruce gum, exactly. And, uh, and how can you survive in it? Put some provisions in and uh, seal it up, and hope for the best. And obviously, it worked because the Pima are still around. Yeah, well, that's yes. But you know what? All of these traditions have similar tones, and the folks that the academics that don't believe that there's any any truth to this. Not, I'm not saying which side we're on. Will say like, well, it's all the same story because you have the same elements. You have the hero of the story. You have the warnings that are ignored. You have the angry creator going to wipe the slate clean and start over. It's just interesting, though, that a lot of elements line up. Yes. But anyway, there's there you go. So after uh, I got to be flood, honest, I mean, if the, given the choice, I prefer a Groot ball to an arc. I think. <laughs> well, it's much, much more interesting. Uh, it really depends on the on the uh, setup because uh, you, you know you you want some out, open space. That's true. The ball's going to get pretty funky in there. Yeah. After after forty days, I don't know how long they were adrift, but but yes, they again the the story they land on a safe patch of land and start anew. And I believe helped by birds? Yes. Yes. The birds come and help them. Yeah. So those are two possible aspects of why they became known as the Superstition Mountains. There's the, the flood mythology that's part of the Pima lore. And then there's also just the, the idea that farmers said, you know, they didn't want to go up there. And one of the reasons they didn't want to go up there was another problem that they were having and that anyone was having that got anyone near there was that the Apache were in there and they were killing everybody. Yeah. It didn't matter yeah. who you – if you weren't Apache, you got killed. Yeah. <laughs> they didn't want anybody around there. What was interesting though is that this area, this mountain, was even feared by the uh, fearsome Apaches, the fearless right. and fearsome Apaches. Oh, uh, I didn't I know think, that. Well, I believe that they have their own myth here, and where we're getting this. Uh, oh, if you want to look at the uh, on Wikipedia, the, the, oh, that's the, right, I remember reading this now. Yeah, it just yeah, listed, yeah, yeah. and I just found this an interesting tidbit. Some Apaches believe that the hole leading down into the lower world or hell is located in the Superstition Mountains. And then they think that the winds blowing from the hole are supposed to be the cause of severe dust storms in the metropolitan region. Okay. So yeah, Phoenix gets bad dust storms. But what I'm saying is that no matter how much of a a badass you are, you're still kind of wary about this whole area. Well, according to some of the stuff, and I didn't know this until we started digging around on this story, but according to some of the stuff that I found, 
in Zuni, Apache means enemy. That's yeah. how they were originally. And originally, I guess they had called themselves the D people or D. Which just means the people. The yeah. people, exactly. <laughs> we're but just people. Got, we're just doing our thing. Yeah. They got renamed yeah. by the by everyone who feared them, specifically yeah. the Zuni in this case. And that name, I guess, is how they refer to themselves even to this day. Yeah, right. Uh, well, they like you said, they owned it. But it's like, you know what? Everybody wants to be called Mr. Black. Right. <laughs> you don't want to be Mr. Pink. Reservoir dogs. Well, there you go. Yes, right. that's the one. Okay. Yeah. So here's something interesting. One of the guys in the Pulitzer Prize-winning picture of the flag raising at Iwo Jima by Joe Rosenthal for the AP was a Pima Native American. His name was Ira Hayes. He's on the far left, right? Yes. Okay. So, if, yeah, right. If you look at the uh, the profile of the guys raising the flag after that really horrendous battle, he's on the far left. Oh, cool. And he's got his arms raised towards the pole. So, yeah. And uh, he's didn't do very well after that. He got a lot of notoriety and just his role, and, and, and I think maybe some survivor's guilt, that was a very tough battle. A lot of his fellow soldiers got killed, and coming back after the war, uh, having to go around and do these tours. Right, now you're famous because you put the flag up. You're famous, you put yeah. the flag, and keep doing, you know what, it's, it reminded me a little bit of Bob Ford having to go around and do those shows, and you feel like an idiot. Right. But it's, you're getting paid, you feel responsible, but you're adrift. What do you do now? Wait, Ira Hayes. That's there's a yeah. Johnny Cash song. Oh, the that's ballad, yes, the Ballad of Ira. Of course, yeah. So that's about him. That's, yeah, yeah, it's about that's him. A sad song. About uh, him. I think we can provide a link to that. Yeah, it's got it, to be a link. If we do the song, we're going to have to come up with half a million dollars. <laughs> <laughs> we'll never do another show, but you can hear that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for free. Uh, but I think it's on YouTube, right? Should be. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I'm sure it is. I'm sure it is. Yeah, good, classic Johnny Cash. But the it, Ballad it, of Ira Hayes. I yes. just looked it up. Ah, very yeah, good. The Ballad of Ira Hayes. Uh, anyway, he's probably the f- most famous, I would say, Pima tribal member. But there's another famous person there associated with this story. Jacob Waltz. I don't know how famous Jacob Waltz is. <laughs> and he was great in Inglorious Bastards. That is a different Waltz. <laughs> is, you sure? A, yeah, that's Christoph Waltz. Ah, they're both they're both great stories, though. Yes. Uh, no, he, uh, he, he's excellent. But uh, no, what I was going to say is that it's an interesting aspect of just common cultural lore and stories passed down and uh, oral history. Is well, that to say, we still haven't said who he is. He is the Dutchman. He is the lost Dutchman. Yeah. Well, he's not lost. Well, that, no, he's the, and, and you know, he's I also not I, Dutch. That's what, yeah, that's I know. what I'm getting to. German. That's what I'm getting to is people are like, ah, you're Dutch. He's like, well, no, I'm actually, no, you're, you're Dutch to us. So right. that's it. You're stuck with that. Yeah. And, so uh, the, and the story is the story, you know, the story of the lost Dutchman mine. Uh, it's important to note that the Dutchman wasn't lost. The mine was lost. <laughs> he was a, and he was, I used to think and, that yeah. it was the lost, that it's like, where did he's lost? Oh, you did? Yeah. yeah. I was like, well, he's the lost Dutchman, you know? Well, he Also, did. he's German. <laughs> he's German. He wasn't really – yes, he wasn't also Dutch. Right. Uh, but he did a lot of wandering, and this figures yes. into the story as well because he would kind of wander off in the hills like the, a lot of Only these guys do. Year, though. Yes, but for extended periods of time, and nobody yes. knew what he was doing. So that adds to the mystery of it. What's he working on? The thing about a story like this, there's a lot of myth and legend around it, but Jacob Waltz was a real person. He lived from circa 1810 to about 1891. His death is known. And he came to Arizona after he supposedly discovered a mine in the Superstition Mountains on a prospecting trip that ultimately was going to make him a very rich man. Now, his all of his movements, his immigration status, his application for U.S. citizenship, all that stuff has been documented. He was he was a real dude. There's a really great book called The Bible on the Lost Dutchman Gold Mine and Jacob Waltz by Helen Corbin. It actually has a longer title than that, but that's the primary title. Yeah. We have a link to it. It's actually in our Amazon store on our website. Oh, I should mention that. We launched an Amazon store where you can go and 
find most of the books we've ever mentioned on any episode of the show. And if you purchase your book there instead of going directly to Amazon, we get as much as three or four cents or a nickel. <laughs> <laughs> and you you have the, the the pride of digging around through uh, 40 pages of, of books. And I was yes. going to mention that. The organization is a little hard for us to deal with. So there are yeah, multiple... They don't, they don't make it easy, by the way. No, no. It, but you have to click through different pages. So if you're curious and, and have 10 minutes, then, then <laughs> click through all the and see all the books that we've talked about, uh, as well as movies. Yeah, I think there's movies DVDs and, there. And yeah. also, I've even thrown in some metal detectors. Yeah, yeah you there know? you go. Yeah, if, you wanna, hey. if you want to try, uh, try your hand at this, I wouldn't suggest it. You can do it much more safely on your own at other locations. Always please check with the property owner first. This is correct. Yeah, because even if it's not the Lost Dutchman mine, you might get shot. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, so Mary Corbin, or excuse me, Helen Corbin in her book is able to dispel a lot of the myths around Jacob Waltz and the Dutchman mine. But then she was also able to confirm a lot of stuff. In her book, she talks about how when he moved to Phoenix, he became very close with a woman named Julia Thomas. And this is, even though there are a million different stories about him, Julia Thomas is a very consistent part of them. And she had an adopted son named Reinhardt Petrash, or they called him Reiny. Julia ran a bakery and ice cream parlor with her husband, E.W. Thomas, that stood at the corner of Central and Washington Streets in Phoenix, which I guess is now, I think technically it's now downtown Phoenix. Mm-hmm. But you have to see this area. I went on the street view. I love whenever we get an address and we're especially we're doing some yeah. old, I love to go on the street view and see what's there now. It's like high rises. It's a bank, a gym. <laughs> yeah. Like the people that pass through that intersection every day have no idea oh, that yeah. this connection to the superstition, to the Lost Dutchman mine. Uh, like, that's a good, a little good side point here is that we're going to be mentioning some cities now in uh, the state of California as well as Arizona that are totally different than what they were back then. You have to keep that in mind. Yes. It's like we're seeing pictures of Los Angeles around the turn of the century in like 1910. Wilshire Boulevard is orange groves. Yes. And so kind of the point of this is that over time, things change. And not only people and movements and politics and ethnicities, but you have to put yourself in the mindset of the time. That's right. When you, go to, when you go to research this and think about it. You've got to apply the filter of the time and the place and what was going on in the world at that particular point. So in Corbin's book, you can actually see pictures of the bakery from 1884. So we're getting to the point now where cameras are around. So it's pretty right. cool to be able, you're getting right back on the cusp of where you can find images of this kind of stuff. Anyway, so one day Jacob stops by the bakery to see Julia Thomas. They had become friends and she's there with her head down on her flower table crying uncontrollably. Very upset. This is from Corbin's book. Her husband had run off with another woman and all of their savings, or is in a, one of my favorite things. In yeah. A, I think it's uh, the Waldrop's and um, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Yeah. Where's the missus? She run OFT. <laughs> she up and run off. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway. Yeah. In this case, the husband ran off with uh, another woman and all of their savings. The problem with this is for their little store there, they had just ordered this really expensive soda fountain called the Tufts Arctic Soda Fountain. This is a company out of Chicago. This thing is amazing. I actually Googled it. You have to, you have to see. There's some – because they come yeah. up in antique auctions and everything. You can oh, imagine really? like what a draw it would be yeah. for locals to come in there and get these carbonated beverages. Yeah, in a hot environment. Sure. Yeah, exactly. So anyway, this thing's coming in. It's going to be $2,000. Plus she's got all this stuff coming in, supplies for the next month or whatever. She is beside herself. And also we have a picture of the soda fountain posted with this episode. Jacob feels horrible for Julia because even though she's got this business that's running, she she's actually of mixed race, so there's no chance for her to get a bank loan. She's yeah. really hosed, especially without her husband at this time. And Reinhardt is, is a little bit on the younger side. He's not really able to 
step in and take care of things. He is yeah. more in her keep. So yeah. there, there's an issue. Well, but she's a single mom raising a kid, trying to just make it with a small business. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Just trying and, to get by. Yeah. And at this point, the downtown Phoenix was like two dirt roads. Yeah. <laughs> it, wasn't, it wasn't big, but it, but it's one of the larger little uh, frontier towns of the time. Right. Uh, but still, you, it's hard to picture how nothing it was. But a lot, so was Los Angeles at the time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So now Jacob feels so bad for her. By the way, she's German. Yes. And she speaks German. German, so he's obviously got a kinship with her and right. Reinhardt or Reine, as yeah. they called him. She just she decides he's going to help her out, so he goes away. He comes back the next day, yeah. and he's got this cloth. He opens it up, and it's got thirty five pounds of gold in it. Is it gold or the gold ore that has to be? Uh, because I can't remember the specific yeah. de- description of what it was. Although in most cases, he had quartz bearing gold. Okay. Yes, that's yes, what I was getting. Most cases, that, that's what I was getting at because I think that's an important aspect of the story. Is it coins or is it kind it, of the the raw material? You know, I said that they get gold from. It appears ore. to be the raw material okay. in other in, in what we're going to talk about in a little bit, which actually is known as the deathbed ore. That was yes. quartz bearing gold. Yes, right. So he takes it to Wells Fargo there in town, and they do some kind of thing. It's kind of like a wire. I can't remember what it's called, but they, essentially he transfers the money to Chicago and pays off the soda machine for her. There's a catch to this, though. Now he's outed himself. The whole town gets word that he came down there to the bakery with 35 pounds of gold. Yeah. It's not really – it's been sort of maybe quiet up until this point. At least that's what Corbin implies in her book. Yeah. But now it's not a secret anymore. Well, that's why I just asked you about that, because if he came down with a sack of gold coins, that's very suspicious. Where'd you get these? Yeah. If you come down with gold ore or gold-bearing quartz, uh, basically something you, you've pickaxed out of the mountain, well, that means he's got a mine. He's yeah. sitting on an active producing mine, or he's found a gold vein, which you know runs through the rock. Anyway, he's got access to some money. So eventually Jacob gets older, and he's been he's famous for having bags of gold when he needs them, and he's also kind of famous around town for being a little bit crazy, and then maybe he's yeah. sitting on top of something that he's not telling people about twice. Eccentric, yeah, you know, eccentric. which ties in again with the whole persona of the you know the... of any myth about a lost mine. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and you know, twice a year he disappears for a few months at a time into the mountains, comes back down. There were rumors that he had killed people in defense of his mine. He'd been followed up by people. And there's been a lot of disappearances up there. We'll, we'll get to that in a minute. Yeah. But ultimately, Julia and Jacob's relationship matures, and they continue to be friends. Now, there's no implication that there was ever anything else going on there. I think they were pretty different in age, but who knows? Maybe they were more than friends. Who knows? But as he gets older, there eventually there was a uh, catastrophic flood the Salt River flooded, and it flooded out Jacob's house, which yeah. was not in town. And it, the flood was so bad that some people say he was up in a tree. Others say he was on the roof of his house. And Julia became concerned for him, and she sent Riney to go save him. And so Riney goes out to find Jacob either on the roof or in the tree. The river is flooded so bad that at the point where his house is, it's almost eight miles wide. Wow. Yeah, so this is a bad flood. So he rescues Jacob, brings him back to the bakery, and they put him up in the shed behind the bakery to help kind of try to nurse him back to health. He is already fairly sick. He's actually contracted pneumonia yeah. from this situation. Well, he's he's advanced in age. I believe that by the time he hits his deathbed, he's 81. Yeah, he's he's getting on up there. So he's she's they've got him back in the shed. She's trying to take care of him. On his deathbed, he eventually tells Julia how to find the mine. 
Now, he's a little bit cryptic about this, and that the reason is not necessarily that he's trying to be cryptic about it, but apparently he believed he was going to get better. He thought he was going to be able to, oh, you know, and I'm going to take you up there. I'll show you where it is, but you got to go around, you know, Weaver's Needle and come back, and it's just talking about all this stuff. Weaver's Needle is a point at about 4,500 feet elevation, and it's a prominent thing that comes up over and over with the Lost Dutchman Mine as a central sort of place to a jumping off place to start looking well it's a very definable uh, visually uh, landmark around there and and it's not you know it's not completely pointed and and narrow like a needle but you can kind of get the pictures that it looks like it's poking through some fabric yeah because of the uh, the tailings that are uh, surrounding the skirt of this uh, this point it's like a tiny devil's tower yeah it's it's it's, again it's recognizable and describable so people use it as a reference quite often now we get to what is commonly referred to as the deathbed or Jacob has taken a turn for the worse. It's Sunday morning, October 25th, 1891. Julia becomes concerned. She's like, I need to get the doctor. I'm going to bring him back here. I've got to go get the doctor. So she leaves the shed. She comes out the front. I don't know where Reinhardt was at this point or Reine, but Jacob was alone in the shed in the back. As she's coming out of her bakery, there's two guys coming in. One of these two guys is Richard Holmes. And Richard Holmes and his associate are coming, and she says, please, can you guys just go sit with old Jake until I can get back here with the doctor? And they agree to do that. So they go back to the shed to sit down with with Jacob, who is at this point pretty much unconscious, not talking, just right on the edge of dying. Julia goes away. She fetches the doctor. She comes back. Jacob is dead. And on top of that, there was something under his bed that she knew was there. It was gold, and it was gone. Uh, oh, wait. 50 pounds oh. of quartz-bearing gold. It's been described in different ways. Some say it's pure gold. Some say it's ore. Some say it's this, that, and the other. But what I read in multiple places was that it was quartz-bearing gold at a weight of 50 pounds. Today, street market on that, if it was pure gold, would be about three-quarters of a million dollars. Yeah. Depending on what part of its quartz, let's say more than half of its quartz, it's still going to be worth three, four $400,000 in today's value. Well, it's, there's a process called high grading. That's another part of the story is that maybe he didn't get it from the superstition mine, per se. He worked as a miner and prospector for many years leading up to this. And maybe he'd been collecting or stealing little chunks of it along the way. And this was his life savings bag full of the gold-bearing ore. Right. Which she, she actually specifically said to him when he rescued her bakery initially all those years ago with the 35 pounds of gold. She said, I can't take your life savings. And he goes, oh, no, there's plenty more where this came from. Yeah. So that's, you know, he clearly had a a big supply, but it's very important what you just said about where did it come from? Did it come from an active mine that was active right now? Yeah. Or is that a cover story? (laughs) We're going to get to that. Yes, right. (laughs) Anyway, she comes back. He's dead. The two guys are gone and the gold is gone from under the bed. Do we know if they took the gold? Yes, we do, because Richard Holmes took it to be assayed right away, which is where they weigh it and tell you how much it's worth. So upon confrontation, Holmes tells some elaborate story about how Waltz, who was at death's door and couldn't even talk, popped up out of his dying stupor, forgave them for once following him into the hills, and told them how no one deserved the gold under his bed more than them, Richard Holmes and his associate. Ah. He was like, you guys should have this. You really put in that extra effort that time you followed me up there. Thank you so much. I'm dying. Take this 50 pounds of gold that's under my bed. And then he croaked. That's the story. That's the story that Richard Holmes told her or whoever was listening about what happened in those final moments of Jacob Waltz's life. Ah. This begs two questions. The first question being, really? (laughs) I'm (laughs) not like, I don't. This is something is very yeah. – the second one being – and I haven't seen this anywhere in the research, but for me, there's an implication of this is that they helped push him off the cliff of life, I think. 
Uh, well, it's that's hard well, to say. What do you do? To pick up a pillow, put it on his face. He's you know you see the gold uh, under the bed. Yeah. Hey, there's no. What are you going to do? Forensics? There's no. Yeah. There's no. Uh, Coroner. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's no, no autopsy. Why can't yeah, I find that word? Yeah. yeah. There's no autopsy. I don't know. It's just strange. But anyway, there's apparently a feud that's been going on ever since then between the Holmes family and the descendants of Reinhard Petrosch, who was uh, Julia's adopted son, yeah. as well as uh, someone else. They're all do, all continuing to debate who owned the gold that was under Jacob uh, Waltz's bed. The, the, the uh, quantifiable sack, yes. 50 pound sack of gold. But you know what? There's always an argument over money and inheritances. Yeah, I've seen that in my own family, actually. I think we all have. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So now we're going to change gears. We're going to talk about what I call the interlopers. So the first interloper, the most famous interloper that we have to mention is the hermit of Superstition Mountain, Elisha Revis. Yes. Before we get into Revis, I wouldn't actually know that much about Revis if it weren't for – I mean, Warren Gettler and Bob Brewer talk about him in their book, but it's a very brief mention. We got some more details on him from – Tom Collinborn, who is a superstition wilderness author and historian with a particular expertise on Arizona history. I think he's at Apache Junction, which is a small town area outside of Phoenix there. Right, uh, next he's to the a, mountain. Yeah, but he's he's one of the definitive local historians. And I think he had something to do. He sat on the school board or something. Yeah, but, and he's but, part yeah. of that library. And a lot of his documents are on the Apache Junction library page, which we have links to several of those. They are amazing. He is such a great writer. Oh, he yeah. He has so much great information. We also have links to his books in our store at our website. It is, it's must-read stuff if you like all this information you want to go further on it. Yeah, there's there's actually other papers uh, that he's written about the whole area, and it's a great site. Yeah. So, and not just about Rivas, but about a lot of the characters we're talking about tonight, even some of the ancillary ones. Now, according to an article by Colin Bourne on the Apache Junction Public Library website, which we just mentioned, Elisha Rivas was born in 1827. He used to be a school teacher in Illinois, but eventually he moved to California to teach in El Monte. Now, you might remember the town of El Monte from such times as the opening quote. <laughs> and and yeah. if you live here in the Southern California area, you're certainly uh, familiar with it. It's just a little uh, uh, suburb here. Well, and, uh, and also I one time I drove across the country several yeah. years ago, and I rented an RV from El Monte RV. Oh, yeah. Huge <laughs> place. <laughs> right off, it's right off the 10 freeway, which yes. makes it very convenient. If you've ever taken a road trip in this country, you have seen El Monte RV RVs driving around because they're everywhere. <laughs> yeah. It's a very big company. Yeah. But anyway, so – but we're talking about a long time ago, El Monte. We're talking about in the early A little 1800s. hamlet, uh, right. And, and, but as we said before, even Los Angeles was very tiny right. back then. Right. So, so now yeah. this is where we assail El Monte's ancient character. <laughs> well, ancient. But well, yeah. not ancient, but yeah. a, a while back. Ancient to us who have only been alive for Yeah, mid, mid to the end of the uh, 19th century here. El Monte was the far western headquarters of the Knights of the Golden Circle after the war. So this community yeah. was so rife with Confederate sympathizers that in a 38-page historical document cited by Warren Gettler and Bob Brewer in Shadow of the Sentinel, this document, which was called The Knights of the Golden Circle in California, with special emphasis on Southern California and San Bernardino County. That was written by a man named uh, – whose last name was Waitman, I believe. Yes. And here's a quote. The KGC began infiltrating California in the late 1840s, and by 1850, there were some 100,000 Southerners in SoCal. And maybe as many as 18,000 were KGC agents. The most active of these secessionist centers were in El Monte, San Bernardino, Los Angeles, 
San Luis Obispo, Mariposa, Stockton, Marysville, Sacramento, and San Francisco. Yeah, very hard to believe. If <laughs> I made a joke to Scott the other day, is if these old KGC members and uh, masterminds could just see what San Francisco and El Monte <laughs> look like today, like what? <laughs> they would be very, very not just because of the time travel, <laughs> you know, and, and, and technology of just the makeup of it. And you know, yes, and, and who's who's living there now? It is probably not what they envisioned. They are, yeah, they might not be huge uh, LGBT supporters. <laughs> I, don't know. I don't think they <laughs> would even know what that was. Right. But what I was saying, though, is that uh, that just goes to show if they were successful in their plots, what would it look like today? There's uh, something that we were going to mention we may come up with later. It's why is this cash still around? It may be in some alternate universe they were successful. Well, there you go. It could be another world altogether. certainly is now. So anyway, I think it's a fairly firm fact here that El Monte did have a lot of activity. Now, this is a portion of a letter written by the newspaper editor for the local Weekly Patriot, which served the El Monte San Bernardino area. And it's a letter of warning. This guy is pro-union, but he's getting very concerned that the political tide around there is getting very hostile. And so he writes to the United States commander, the Pacific Division, that, hey, you better take a look at this. It, it's, it's looking kind of hostile over here. So I'm going to read the, the excerpt from this letter, which is found in the book. In the Shadow of the Sentinel. Yes. By Warren Gettler and Bob Brewer. Yes. Yes. Okay. There exists amongst us, through all these southern counties, a secret organization of secessionists. And in a settlement near Los Angeles, there is an organized cavalry company which is ready at almost any moment to break out, holding an inveterate hatred towards the citizens of this place. And it is at this point they would make their first attack, and there are some in our midst who would receive them cheerfully and help them in their treacherous designs. The secessionists of El Monte are only waiting the withdrawal of the troops from Los Angeles before they commence operations." So he sounds pretty convinced that yeah, they're waiting concerned. for a trigger. Yeah. He's a little concerned. <laughs> he's a little concerned. We're surrounded here by pro-Confederacy sentiment and people who have infiltrated probably prominent posts. And if you kind of get into the theory here is that that would be part of the grand plan. Yes. Get people who are pro-KGC or at least pro-Confederate or pro-Southern rights uh, secessionists and place them in areas of prominence. So let's go back here. Let's back up a yes. little bit here to just before you read that. As I said, what Tom Collinborn said was that Revis, born in 1827, was a schoolteacher in Illinois, but moved to California to teach in El Monte. Why did he go to El Monte? Maybe he just went to El Monte. I, no, could be. You know, be, uh... and that's something that we mentioned today before we had dinner to record tonight. There's a lot of assumptions going on. We know for a fact, just backing up a little bit between the first two parts of this series, we know for a fact that the KGC existed. We know for a fact that there were high-ranking members in it that were acknowledged to be members, not only from the Holt Report, the Judge Advocate General's report, but also from portraits they had commissioned yeah, of themselves yeah. where they're making secret hand signs or yeah. you can see the KGC logo. Yeah. But in terms of specific associations, and I want to make this clear in case any of Elisha Rivas's family is listening, we cannot say that he was a KGC member any more than Warren Gettler and Bob Brewer can. You can only say it stands to reason. Yeah. It's a possibility. Yes. Well, that's the thing. He's got family. Uh, uh, Elisha Rivas, uh, Mar Elisha Marcus Rivas does, 
uh, because he has a daughter uh, that he that was born in El Monte, I believe, and and so I'm sure her family in some line, uh, some lineage is still there. Yes. Now again, you can't positively say that they are in collusion together, Jacob Waltz and Elisha Rivas, but it is known that they did know each other. That is correct. Yeah, they crossed paths in Los Angeles when Waltz was in town vying for his citizenship. That is something that I read. I can't remember where I read it, but I know yeah. that that's how they met. So now, so so we've definitely placed Rivas in El Monte. There was no question that he was there, regardless of whether or not he was associated with the KGC. Although it seems like there's a pretty good chance that people in El Monte at this particular time had crossed paths with that organization in one way or another. Now, the KGC, the way they, the way that it worked for them is they had the operatives that went in small groups or cells, and they were they were coordinated back from other main centers like Charleston or maybe Natchez, Mississippi, which we'll come back to in a second. Yes. And so these cells would have maybe a half dozen men in them, no more than that, with varying professions. And essentially, they're kind of like sleeper cells. They, these guys yeah. are ready to go. They're very skilled. They go, they move around the country and they go and they wait to be called upon. Yeah, like the movie Telephone with Charles Bronson. Sorry, well, that's another one you have to add now. Sorry about that. No, it's okay. <laughs> no, if you I don't know that movie. Oh, sure it's great. Like we'll it. we'll watch it. But basically, that that involves sleeper cells, but people who are have been placed there by the Russian government in the United States in regular jobs. That's the that's the mo is what we're getting at. Is that you place everyday folks that they all know they have regular jobs. It's Joe down the street who runs the bakery, things like that. Uh, but I, and I think if you backed up, you had mentioned the European connection and that they think the KGC had recruiters in Europe going yes. around in Italy, France, England, and Spain, looking for people who were very skilled there, uh, who had military experience, had fought in you know, recent wars there, and probably weren't making a whole lot of money in their profession in their native country, but were willing to come to the United States to start anew and have much better opportunity. Recruitment. Assets. And there you go. There's a procedure to groom these people, and first they're placed on probation for about three years doing some work. They think that Jacob Waltz was working in the gold fields. He had a mining engineering background in Germany. I think his father was a farmer, but he was interested in, in mining and therefore prospecting. So he'd worked in Georgia in the gold fields. Kind of seeing – they have to check these guys out. You don't want some crackpot. That's right. He was in North Carolina too at some point. Yeah, yeah. He, yeah. yeah, he went through North Carolina, uh, worked the gold fields there. And uh, so they think that the KGC handlers – now, boy, it's, it's, it's sounding like a spy plot, yeah. which it kind of is. Hey, well, you know what? These yeah. organizations, there's a reason they all run a certain way. If yes. Gonna, it's know. the most efficient way yeah. uh, uh, to handle human behavior. So you want to check these guys out. How is he doing? Is Can he keep his mouth shut? Yeah. Uh, is he a hard worker? Can he be trusted to follow orders and keep a secret? And then if they, they pass that after about three years, and then, yeah, as you were saying, they would group together, and, and I think groups of five or six, and head out west. So now going back to Colin Bourne's article on Revis, he was really a character. He was a pretty amazing guy in terms of how what he was capable of doing. In fact, he was an expert marksman, and he kept with him a Winchester 1886 repeater. Now, we placed him in El Monte, but in 1874... Rivas inexplicably left El Monte and moved into a mountain hideout. Do you know where? Well, the Superstition Mountains, perhaps? Yes, in okay. the Eastern Superstition Range. Yeah. I want to read one of the articles that Conborn wrote on Rivas, talks about how much of a badass this guy was. <laughs> he did, this is a great little story here. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Elisha Rivas was a skilled packer and expert marksman with a rifle. He carried a Winchester 1886 38 repeater, and there were many stories about his marksmanship and fearless way of life. 
One of the best stories told about Rivas was the time he defended his abode from ten fierce Apache warriors who were heavily armed. Early in the afternoon of May 8, 1878, Apache warriors tried to get Rivas out of his defensive dugout. Three warriors lost their lives to the deadly accuracy of Rivas's rifle. Finally, they decided to go across the creek and camp for the night. Their new plan was to wait until Rivas ran out of food and water. They were in no hurry. Rivas, while awaiting his fate, recalled an old story he had heard about the Apaches from other men who had survived similar situations. If he could convince the Apache he was insane or crazy, they might leave him alone. He quickly stripped off all of his clothing from his body, grabbed two butcher knives, and ran across his garden and the creek, screaming and showing absolutely no fear. The Apaches heard, then saw the fire-red hair and blue eyes of a screeching white devil racing toward them (laughs) in the light of their campfire. The Apaches were convinced he was surely crazy, as no sane man would run naked, armed with two knives, into the (laughs) camp of seven heavily armed men. The Apaches fled in panic, never to return to Rivas's mountain sanctuary again. The Apaches raided into the area as late as 1881, but avoided Rivas's valley. This horrific event in the life of Elisha Marcus Rivas certainly represented the overall cunning, daring, and self-reliance needed to survive in these rugged and isolated mountains during this period. Well, he never bathed or shaved, so I'm sure just the uh, you know the surrounding aura of him was it was scary enough. But you see that quite a bit in movies and and different uh, legends. Is that uh, Native American peoples? If you're acting kind of nuts, yeah, they don't want anything to do with you because you were possibly filled with evil spirits, right? And you're contagious. Yeah, you're contagious. Yeah, it's like- <laughs> no, it's it's best to like, man, if you if you're crazy, don't, you don't want to get. You know what? That's good advice for today, though. Don't you don't want to get mixed up? It's just it's just bad uh, juju they think you had. But it reminded me. Of Jeremiah Johnson, when Robert Redford is so frustrated in the winter time, it's everything's snowed over and frozen, and he can't catch any fish. He's so frustrated, he jumps into the creek and is like grabbing at fish. Oh. <laughs> and then and, they, and a warrior comes up, and uh, it just looks at him, gives him the stink. I like, whoa, you are you are nuts! Yeah. Like, and and he rides off. Like, yeah, I'm not gonna doesn't doesn't kill him. He just doesn't bother with him because it's like I, I don't know what you're doing, dude. But I I, don't I want feel like this. there are a lot of good westerns that have scenes like that. In yeah. Them. Well, that's, uh, yeah, exactly. Or, and it's just that whoever your enemy is at the time comes up and is like, what is the matter? Yeah. <laughs> You're not behaving correctly, <laughs> which is, yeah, a lot of white man stories of like just doing uh, silly stuff. But uh, anyway, uh, what we're saying is he's no greenhorn. He's no uh, tenderfoot here. He knows his way around uh, the backwoods and the mountains and is able to take care of himself. And he's a little bit eccentric. He's kind of, he's the hermit, right, of Superstition Mountain. Yes. But he's not antisocial. No. Uh, he would he would grow his own vegetables there at Rivas Ranch, as he called it, as his homestead up there. And then he would ride into town periodically and sell vegetables. And that's how he made his living, right? Yeah. 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 Made a little money here and there. Well, enough to keep, enough to buy provisions. So again, he's not totally insane. He's just a hardy guy and, and a character. There's some question as to what he's doing up there, though. I mean, well, maybe just yeah. and maybe he's just being a hermit. And and we're going to come back to that though. But what I want to talk about next is his famous cousin. Just quickly, before we get to that, we wanted to say that we're so grateful to Parachute Home for sponsoring this three-part series, and we want to encourage all of our listeners to log on to ParachuteHome.com slash ALP and check out all the great bedding products they offer and pick out something for yourself, or even better, as a gift for someone else this holiday season. 
Yes, and I want to add to that sentiment and say it's even better to have a sponsor like Parachute Home because they are a company with a conscience. Yeah, that's the right word. I'm, of course, referring to the fact that Parachute Home has partnered with Nothing But Nets, an organization that provides mosquito nets and bed nets to places like Africa where people, children especially, are at risk for malaria. Yeah, I mean, there's numbers out there that suggest every minute a child in Africa dies from malaria. Every minute. And it's a completely avoidable disease. So it's nice to know in the back of your mind that when you're shopping online at parachutehome.com slash A-L-P for yourself or buying a gift for someone else this holiday season, you're also helping out a great cause. And they've got a lot of great products to choose from. As you can tell, we're pretty excited about having these guys as sponsors. So please log on to parachutehome.com backslash A-L-P. Yeah, don't forget that. That's important because for you guys, our listeners, you get $25 off your first order by using the code ASTONISHING at checkout to start sleeping better today. All right, now back to the show. Here's where we get to talk about one of my favorite interlopers, as I said earlier, that Elijah Rivas was <laughs> yeah. in this case, James Addison Rivas, ah. Elijah's cousin, supposedly. Or not cousin, depending yeah. on who you're listening to we'll get or to reading that. Yeah. yes but uh, james james addison Rivas actually is part of one of the m- more famous cons ever perpetrated in the united states well back when you could do a massive massive land fraud grab yeah. <laughs> he yeah. was he was the guy one of the guys behind that but i think you're you're talking uh, uh, this comes after the treaty of guadalupe hidalgo and the Gadsden Purchase, right? Yes. It's tied in with that. Yes, it's defining that because when that land was ceded to the United States by Mexico, there were rules that had to be applied to claims going forward, people that were grandfathered in and that sort of thing. Right. Keep in mind, the Spanish were here early on. We're talking like mid-16th century and later here uh, when they started exploring the area. So there were families. I mean, not a lot of development, but there were certain land uh, titles that had to be recognized. And the borders that you see now on a map of the U.S., that wasn't always the way it was. We did not own southern Arizona and southwestern New Mexico. That came with the Gadsden Purchase. Yeah, the Gadsden Purchase was actually a legitimate land grab. Well, after, <laughs> yes, after the <laughs> Mexico lost, they were like, hey, yeah. how, you know, uh, let's go with this deal. And they were kind of obliged to do it. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, President Pierce, Franklin Pierce, who was the 14th president. And also a suspected KGC and pro-slavery sympathizer. Yes. Important oh. to remember. That's mm-hmm. actually, we brought that up in one of the earlier parts. Yeah. He, he managed, um, there's a plane coming, I'm just going to keep going. <laughs> right. He managed to uh, negotiate this purchase of the lower part of Arizona, all the way from the west border to the eastern border of it, and part of southern New Mexico, for $10 million, which would be roughly $250, 260000000 million today. And the whole idea of this was so they would have a place to put the Transcontinental Railroad, which was a KGC goal for moving goods from the Golden Circle to the west coast of North America. Yeah, and if we didn't mention it earlier, I think we have, but California was a major prize. Uh, and again, go, going to what we talked about with El Monte and San Francisco and towns throughout California, northern and southern, there's a lot of pro-Confederacy sympathizers there. Uh, oh, yeah, I think the I read a note, the 1860 census said there was about 360,000 people. If you can figure 100,000 of those are sympathetic to the southern right. cause. More than a fourth. A lot of people. Yeah. yeah and so, uh, and, you know, but it represented California had great uh, mineral wealth, great ports for sea trade. And if you can get a railroad going all the way from your strongholds in the south, Natchez, Mississippi, Atlanta, 
and get all the way to the bottom of the United States through to your supply line, that really adds to your power base. As we talked about before with the invasion of Nicaragua, the takeover of Cuba, the acquisition of Mexico or seeding Revolución. I like how at the end of that, you sound like uh, Richard Dreyfus and Moon over Parador. Revolución? <laughs> I can't work like this! <laughs> nice. <laughs> Give me the cards! Uh, okay, okay. okay. Yeah. <laughs> These weren't that far-fetched ideas. I know it's hard to think about that now, but it's a wild, wild west. It really was. And so here comes James Addison Rivas with this crazy idea. And it wasn't all that crazy. Well, I mean, it, look, it, it was not probably the, bo- the most thought out uh, criminally. because. <laughs> yeah. But he had a, he had a, an idea that, look, if, if we could fake some of these historic Spanish land grants— use kind of the same copy on the on the paperwork. Maybe we can kind of slide this through and get several million acres for ourselves. This is a very elaborate scheme. And overall, it's pretty impressive because what they're saying is we're going to prove that we're, we're connected to this Spanish nobility and they deeded this land. This was supposed to be our land, this land which we will call a healthy portion of yeah. Arizona, which, yeah. by the way, included the Superstition Mountains yeah. and the range around there. That's important. Yes, it is important. We're going we're gonna to convince the government that they need to hand this over to us as part of the rules that were laid out in the Gadsden Purchase and the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo. Yeah. Did I say Hidalgo right? Pretty good, pretty good. Like well, just no, just that. like the uh, the movie with uh, Viggo Mortensen, right? Isn't that? Oh a, yeah, is that the I horse race? Yeah, Hid- Hidalgo. It's Hidalgo. almost easier for me when I don't put Guadalupe in. Stop I'll thinking about it, it in Spanish. Yeah, yeah. That, that's a good point. <laughs> <Yeah>. Right. <laughs> anyway, so but there were rules laid out here. How, how what are we going to do with these precursor deals that were already in place for yes. land? So this plan, James Addison Rivas, Elisha's cousin and his accomplice, whose name was Charles Gitt. They went so far as to forge documents all over the place. They're inserting false records into libraries, into recording books. They are getting prominent politicians on board who are supporting them. It it almost happened, but eventually the whole thing collapsed and he got prosecuted and it all went away. Now, there's a lot of questions about this, and this is one of the things that Brewer and Gettler talk about in The Shadow of the Sentinel – what was the original goal here, and who put them up to it? Was it just a con? Maybe it was just a con. I mean, they would have been in the, today's equivalent of multi, multi, multi millionaires, billionaires, if they could have proven Ugh. that yeah. James Addison Peralta Rivas was related. And Peralta, by the way, this is a name that's going to come up again. He used that name and implied that he was connected to Don Miguel Peralta, yeah, who was a Spanish nobleman. There's even a portrait. Which I don't yeah, know if he yeah. commissioned this portrait to <laughs> you be could painted, do that. Yeah. The, but there was there was a whole there was a whole fake. This is like catch me if you can. Yeah, this is a really elaborate con. Yeah, and they are trying desperately to make all these people believe that all this land belongs to them and they should get it. So eventually it collapses. He gets prosecuted. It doesn't work out. Yeah, very early Photoshop painting. <laughs> You're yeah, just like, yeah. hey, paint me into that scene. The painting wasn't him. The painting no, no, was right. of Don Miguel. Just to be clear to our yes, listeners, right? Yes, it wasn't of James Addison Rivas, but it was of. The imaginary Don Miguel Peralta. <laughs> how do you how do you follow that up? Yeah. Except that you know when you do land title grants and quit claim deeds, those are records of public. Right, and yeah. he made millions of dollars off the quit claim deeds, which is a whole thing we can try to explain. And I don't fully understand them myself, but I think what it has to do with is uh, getting paid for the rights to say, hey, I'm you know I'm going to take this land. You you know you we this. I don't know what a quit claim deed is. <laughs> 
<laughs> Good enough. That's I can't a, remember. I remember yeah. that Fred Nolan used them uh, to secure yes. part of Oak Island as well. Uh, it's a way to, yeah. You know, you know what? what? Google it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, he made yeah. millions and millions of dollars in the in the lead up to this deal yeah. that was supposed to grant him a huge part of Arizona. Right. So The story behind the story, though, is that I think there's two things going on here. One is that there's a giant grand scheme, kind of a nefarious plan with a little bit of support, not too much. It's how you plant the seeds for a legend or a myth, and and it ties in with Superstition Mountain. You kind of put the story out there. Maybe you tell some old timers there in a bar, a little, a little bit drunk, that you know, like, hey, there's either a mine or my legendary Spanish roots <laughs> have right. acquired this major chunk of a whole territory and nation. And uh, you start getting that out in the public. You get newspaper articles written about it. Maybe true, maybe not. Propaganda. Exactly. You, you spin. Right. Your original lay- spin doctors. Exactly. But yeah. you're laying the groundwork for this so that it's in the public mindset. It's like Jacob Waltz and that whole story. Uh, no one knows it's true, but that's the legend that's been going around because people heard about it being told so often that it lasts to this day. I don't know. This came from a forum when we were digging around on this. There was a forum that suggested this whole thing was based on a deal that is actually recorded – in the Yavapai County Recorder's Office in Book 1, page 74 from October 1864. And we have not personally verified this. But in this deal, supposedly in Prescott, Arizona, a man named George Willing purchased the rights to a land grant from a man named Antonio Peralta for $100. This was for a legal grant of land one mile square outside Tubac, Arizona, that had been granted to Peralta's great-grandfather by the king of Spain. This was apparently a real deal, but it was only for one square mile. Some years later, Charles Gitt, who was James Addison Rivas's partner, saw a copy of this land grant in the county recorder's office. He stole the recording of it, and he and Revis used the wording and the signatures on it to produce their own land grant of a lot of Arizona. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, right. Right. So that's how the Revis Peralta land grant fraud began. I don't know. Again, we haven't personally verified whether these documents actually exist, but this makes sense that that was the seed for the deal. But there's other people that say that maybe the KGC put him up to it because they wanted that land. Oh, well, sure. I mean, there's a a huge amount of personal gain to be made getting half of a state, actually a half and I think a quarter of of another state under your own personal control because it would make you fabulously wealthy. Yes. And and not so much that like, I just want a lot of, I got to, I got to spread out. I want a lot of land. Although I think Ted Turner's doing that. <laughs> yeah. Well, Ted Turner has a huge ranch in the Northern part of New Mexico, just South of the Colorado border that my, my dad's friends have a, have a ranch there themselves that is, is nearly bordering it. It's 500,000 acres. I think there's an interstate wow. that goes through the middle of it. Yeah. <laughs> I get, yeah right. When you're like looking out the plane window, everything you see is Ted Turner's. Wow. Yeah. Yes. Getting back to the land grant, sure, it would be nice if you could sneak your way in there and like, no, no, I own it. I own half of Arizona and and a good third of New Mexico and some northern parts of Mexico and, and California, whatever you can get your hands on. But it makes more sense, I think, to me that it's probably being pushed a little with a little bit of support by an organization right. who could really do something with the land. That's my point is right. that – What's one guy going to do except like sit back and, yes, again, collect the money that's rolling in? But it makes more sense for a large organization to own it who has plans on maybe breaking off that chunk of the southern part of the United States for their own goods. Yes. Uh, However, it fits the other modus operandi of the KGC in that 
once this thing all goes south, literally, yeah. <laughs> uh, they drop you like a hot potato. Yeah, because... they left his cheese out in the wind pretty yeah. much right away, and which is what they yeah. do. And the other thing they do is they put forth people – they had a, a tradition of putting forth people that wouldn't necessarily raise suspicion if they were busted in some big operation like this because they didn't seem smart enough to be a piece of a large – organization yeah. with a grand plan. It's just like, oh, that guy was trying to pull a con and yeah. it didn't work out and we don't know him. <laughs> <laughs> and so, yeah. again, there's people listening. I was like, oh, this is all pseudo history and pseudo – and maybe it is. You're, yeah. there, are, there are a lot of assumptions being made. But the thing that you have to remember and what we're going to come around to towards the end of this episode is that if you're thinking all – if you have a theory about all of this stuff and that theory needs to culminate with the finding of something and the mm-hmm. finding of that thing – which might be some treasure or whatever, verifies that what you thought going into it, at least part of it is true. Right. And and Bob's already found stuff. And we mentioned that in part two. He's found stuff. So – and we know that the KGC existed. We want to remind everybody that. That is not pseudo history. That is true history. There are a lot of assumptions that are being made about specific people and their level of involvement with the KGC – and these assumptions, you have to take them for what they're worth. We can't vouch for them. There's not a record that says this and that happened. We do know that James Addison Rivas tried to take over Arizona. <laughs> yeah, right. We don't know why yeah. beyond a simple con. And maybe it was just a simple con. Right, because, again, these stories are fused with reality, fact, and a good dose of fiction made up by the people at the time. It's the telephone game. It's Yes, exactly. It's subterfuge. What is remembered correctly? What is accurate? These people are real. But it's like with Elisha Rivas and Jacob Waltz. We know that they knew each other. Were they in the same club, could you say? We don't know, but things seem likely. And again, that's what Scott's getting at is when you make enough of these connections, when enough of these coincidences happen, you may not be able to, to nail it down firmly as truth, but it seems likely. Well, according to Brewer and Gettler, Rivas was a KGC operative. I couldn't find anywhere else to corroborate that. Yeah. Although everything else I ever looked up in Shadow of the Sentinel for cross-corroboration, I found multiple sources citing it. He doesn't really cite how he knew that, but he does say that James Addison Rivas was thought to be a KGC operative. That's kind of known. And I think they make another stretch, though, with Jacob Waltz is that they don't know for sure, but he really fits the profile. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And yeah, and that's we're going to come back to that a little bit more. So same pattern of travel as as uh, Revis. Two different men, of course, but wilderness men willing to set up homesteads in a very remote and inhospitable and uncomfortable area. For what reason? The thing about Peralta that I want to say is that as far as I can tell from everything I've read, Don Miguel Peralta is a complete fabrication of James Addison Revis. Uh, Yes. And the Peralta nobility and all that. Now, still, there are people on these treasure forums who are talking about, well, the Peralta family and they're naming all these people in it. There are Peraltas. It's a real name. It's the name of a character on Brooklyn Nine-Nine. There's Pal Peralta. They <laughs> yeah. make skateboards. Stacey yeah. Peralta was part of the original Z-Boys, right. the, the original skateboarders out of uh, Venice, California. There's it's, Peraltas out there. Yeah. We're not saying the name Peralta doesn't exist. No, no. It's a very common Hispanic surname. Uh, but you brought up an interesting point earlier in regards to... Ancestry.com, which we use as a tool here to kind of poke around and see if they were related in yes. different family trees. But what you said is that, look, if you are a famous, wealthy – now, that's that's the legend is the Peralta family or whoever that's right. is behind this was a very wealthy mining family, generations long, very powerful, lots of influence 
and yet there's no trace of them. Now, there's there are other Peralta families. One, I believe they think it was a mining family, but they, they were based out of Oakland, California, a long ways away. Yeah. Uh, of course, there's plenty in Mexico, and uh, and I'm sure there are plenty that are wealthy. But are they really the ones behind this and the legend of the Peralta Stones? The Peralta Stones are these stones that were found in 1948 in the area of the Superstition Mountain. By right. a visiting hiker, supposedly. That's one origin story. Yes. And there are a couple. It gets a little shady, uh, but they're rectangular stones, the main components. And I think Warren Gettler says there are four stones I've read. I think Wikipedia says there's two. Now, these are very mysterious, but they're very well done craftsmanship-wise. <laughs> i got to yes. say, out of all the things that you'll see, we'll try to put a link up because you have to see them yourself. They're a little bit hard to describe. They're still around. They're they're, the they are still around. I believe currently they are in the Arizona Natural History Museum. But what we're talking about here are reddish-gray sandstone rectangles, essentially. They're about – I think they're about 16 inches by a foot wide, and they are inscribed, again, with pictorial ciphers. And, and these I, are symbols yeah. that are familiar to people who have been following this story. And even if people that might have followed the Oak Island story, we have the carved heart. Oh, boy. Yeah. You know, we'll, we'll talk about this a little bit further here uh, later on. But there are a lot of similarities with every other type of treasure site here. Spanish treasure in which they use coded symbols. But the same symbols keep coming up. So on, on one of these stones... There is a carved heart, or you could call it a valentine, and it's a it's been like chipped out of the rock, so it's in a depression. There is a separate heart-shaped stone that fits perfectly within that. There is the date of 1847, really nicely carved into this. And again, I'm, I'm just going to— Yeah, the penmanship I'm, is yeah. top-notch. <laughs> it's, it's, they actually look really nice. Well, a lot of yeah. people think they're fake. Well, that's the thing because they look so they look so very well done. And I'm throwing out just a bunch of imagery here. I'm not going in any order because you really have to look at these yourself. It's really hard for me to uh, for us to express them, even when you're reading it in the book here, to get an idea of what they look like. There's phrases in broken Spanish, not spelled correctly, which you know again that's a little side note, possibly mistake, possibly yes. Uh, pay attention to this. You'll see Rio in Spanish, which means river, but does it mean R10? The front leg on the R is extended a little bit. The I looks like it possibly has a curl at the top for the number one. Double entendres, hidden meaning. Which is a map coordinate. In the numeral eight, there is a raised dot there. There is this thing's really chock full of symbols and codes and numbers. There is a priest figure with a crucifix a symbol on its sleeve. And he looks like, well, at first I saw it, I thought it was a witch because it was yeah. the, uh, the bruja, but it's got the pointed hat, but it, it could be an ode to the Knights Templar right. wearing a mantle, as they used to do, or a priest. And Brewer, by the way, winds up with an opinion on, on these stones, which we'll get to in a little bit. But yeah, they're, they're, they're a little crazy. They're a little crazy here, but, but they have, um, again, there's, there's some important clues, and, and most people have seen that, and they can't figure it out. There are phrases like, and again, this is incorrect Spanish, so it's, yo pasto al norte del rio, which is, I pastured north of the river, and there's a picture of a draft horse next to it. And again, very, very good cartoon outline of the horse. Right. You know, that's kind of cryptic. Okay, so you go north of the river, but which river? There's the Gila in English, or there's the Salt River. So these aren't very defined clues. You're not going to be able to take these stones and go out and just walk around and find them. It's not an X marks the spot. It's not an X marks the spot. The stones themselves are a little cryptic in that there's a dotted line 
on two of the different stones. If you put them together, it forms a trail, it looks like. Also, if they're a hoax, it's a hoax by somebody with a lot of knowledge and a lot of background information. Well, somebody who studied these symbols, because like you said, these match up a lot with Oak Island symbols. Again, the heart figures prominently. The horse, that's a very old symbol that's been around. It's, it would be like drawing a picture of a car. We all know what <laughs> yeah, of right, the time. Right. Uh, but the point we're getting at here is that you need this, or maybe you don't need it, but it's a key to a larger mystery. Yes. Or it's meant to throw you off. And one quickly before we move on, I do want to say that, you know, we only have so much time in each of these episodes. There's a lot of information to cover. The whole Peralta legend, by the way, is connected to a mine called the Sombrero Mine. That's a whole other story that's an alternate mythology around what lies in the Superstition Mountains. The Sombrero Mine, this wealthy mining family, the Peraltas, and that this is the thing that everyone is trying to get to. And that comes back around to the Peralta Stones. There's no reason for them to be called the Peralta Stones. They don't say Peralta on them. Other people just refer to them as the, what, the Superstition Tablets or something. I believe uh, Warren Gettler and Bob Brewer just call it the Superstition Mountain Stone Tablets. They right. don't even call them the Peralta Stones because I think in their mind, there's no, that's a dead lead. We yeah. had also read early on that this area is not a gold-producing area. Yeah, exactly. That's, that is one thing. Right. There, there's uh, four arguments that uh, Gettler puts forth in the book of why it doesn't make sense that it's an actual mine. Uh, quickly here, one, uh, expert geologists have ascertained that no large naturally occurring commercially viable deposits of gold exist in the once volcanic eastern superstition range where Waltz was said to have wandered. So... That's that's idea number one. Argument number two, no one has come forward with evidence that a mine or a cache exists, at least since Thomas embarked on her abortive search. So Julia Thomas goes and looks. Yeah. And and that's that was his caretaker that we mentioned earlier that left him to die with two strangers. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, don't put it all on her. No, she cared. about. No, but what was funny is that it's like you're 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 no offense to her. No relatives if they're out there. That would be cool if they contacted us, though. Not for that reason, but uh, (laughs) let us. Yeah, exactly. We get enough of that. So uh, what what we're talking about here, though, is that uh, Waltz left a cryptic message to her. So, again, it's like you're dying. Don't make it clear, dude. Like if you wanted to find. This tell tell exactly where it is, but then again, according to Corbin, yeah. he thought he was going to get better. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting better, as you always say. Yes, I'm getting better. No, you're not. Anyway, so then item a little Monty Python reference. There you for go, the youngsters out there. Yes, check it out. Argument number three, a limited amount of gold ore was extracted at Mammoth Mine at Goldfield, a short-lived desert boom town that sprang up to the west of the superstitions in the 1890s, just after Waltz's demise. But no one on the record has come out of the superstitions with a sack of gold nuggets. Right. You know what I'm saying? So there's no, there's, there might be some ore there, and there's one theory that maybe that was his paycheck. Not the coins that were stolen. It's a KGC big, paycheck. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, this they had their natural. own banking system. It was called <laughs> crap buried in the ground. <laughs> it's in rocks. <laughs> you have to chip it out and, and refine it. But, but it's worth something. It's definitely worth something. And argument number four, there's been no mining company that has shown any interest in the area for a very long time. And you know if a company, if a corporation, a mining corporation especially, thinks something's promising, they are in there. Yeah. And they're not leaving till they've drained it. It would be the superstition pit. Yeah. <laughs> the strip mine. <laughs> uh, okay. So what Scott and I have been talking about is that, yes, there's a lot of supposition. There's a lot of uh, inferences that may not be tied correctly together or have any substance to them. But what we do know is there's hard artifacts like these stones, whether real or not, there's something to that. And also dead bodies. 
again, yeah. can't ignore that, that people are showing up dead on this Superstition Mountain. For a long time now, in fact, we referred to TreasureNet.com earlier because they, I found this posting on there by a user named Oro Blanco. White Gold. I'm not a member of the website, so I was unable yeah. to contact him personally. But he made a post a few years ago where he said that he thinks probably over 600 people have died Ooh. on the mountain. Now, it, we're going to list – don't get worried. This is not a ridiculously <laughs> long list. But there is a list here of some of the greatest hits of people that have passed away there. Literally. It's yeah. funny you say hits because they think that maybe these weren't just random serial killer murders. There's a purpose behind them. Right. So let's take a look at his post here. It's 1847-ish. And this is something that has come up in our research in multiple places. There was a massacre of a group of people that occurred in what is today known as Massacre Field. The victims were either Mexicans or Pima Indians caught by Apache warriors. That's another story that leads into the whole superstition mountain on why the Pima Indians didn't want to go up there. 1870, exact date unknown, someone who we haven't even mentioned, Jacob Weiser, who supposedly was a possible partner of Jacob Waltz, although a lot of people don't mention him at all. This man, whoever he was, died of wounds received by attacking Apaches after escaping the mountains to a nearby ranch. 1880, two soldiers who had shown rich gold ore in Florence went into the superstitions and disappeared. Later, their remains were found with a bullet hole in their skulls. 1884, Pedro Ortega found shot dead 30 feet from the home of Jacob Waltz, dead of shotgun wounds. Waltz told the sheriff that Ortega's partner shot him after borrowing Waltz's shotgun. But many believed Waltz himself killed Ortega. Mm -hmm. 1891, that's the year Waltz died. 1892, the last known death caused by an Apache attack, Charles Doby. In 1896, Elisha Rivas, who we mentioned earlier, cousin of James Addison Rivas, possibly, turned up dead not too far from his house up there, his little mountain hideout in Rivas Valley, decapitated. And by the way, I did want to point out, I don't know if we made this clearer earlier. I don't think we did, actually. We went onto Ancestry.com because we had read in a few places online that there was no proof of a relationship between Elisha Rivas and James Addison Rivas of the Arizona Land Con, or the Barony of Arizona, I think it's called. We found three family trees that made direct links between Elisha Rivas and James Addison Rivas. It was impossible because the trees were so huge to ascertain whether or not they were cousins. And I actually sent an email to the owners of one of the trees. Yeah. Um, I haven't heard back from him yet. But uh, the thing about ancestry is people sometimes don't go on there for months at a time and they might not get the message. But if we hear back, we'll let you know. But I can confirm that there are trees that have been developed on Ancestry.com that draw a clear blood connection between James Addison Rivas and the hermit of Superstition Mountain, Elisha Rivas, who was decapitated in 1896 after living a whole life up there. Was he a sentinel? Bob Brewer thinks he might have been a KGC sentinel. Yeah, which is say. unusual because if you're thinking he was one of the sentinels, one of these men entrusted with this, who shot him and why? Right. You know what I'm saying? Like, he should be shooting other people. And, and again, a lot of the lore, even with maybe Grandpa Ashcraft, that maybe he was responsible for, let's say, quickly ushering people out of the area in whatever means possible. Into a hole in the ground? <laughs> Possibly. <laughs> well, I think Grandpa Ashcraft even pointed out that there was a Mexican there who uh, was digging around where he shouldn't have been, and he pointed to basically a grave in a little ravine. Right. So they're, they're not going to come out and tell you that, but they're hinting that people get dealt with who aren't supposed to be here. 
Right. And we're going to come back to that. We're going to come back to that. But but Elisha, yes. Anyway, I made me think of that because if he is, uh, yeah, what, what did he do? Was he going to spill the beans? Was he taking too much for himself? Who knows? 1910, the skeletal remains of a woman were found high in a superstition mountain cave. Gold nuggets were found next to the remains, but no remnant of any clothes. That's a little strange, but the last known Apache attack was 1892. This was 1910, skeletal remains. The Apache were known to strip the people that they killed of all their clothing. 1931, this one is a bit of a ringer. Dr. Adolf Ruth was found dead. His skull detached from the body with a 44 caliber hole, although there's some dispute over this. Ruth had told two prospectors he had possession of a map to the lost gold mine. We're going to give you a little backstory on Adolf Ruth. Yeah, this is one of the more famous stories here because it's, it is certainly documented with witnesses. Forrest was just pointing out to me off the air here that Warren Gettler and Bob Brewer refer to Adolf Ruth as a civil servant, although some of this research we found online indicated that he was a doctor. He's referred to as Dr. Adolf Ruth. So again, this is where things get muddy when you start digging back on stuff like this. Adolf Ruth, doctor or not, came into possession of this map from his son, Erwin Ruth, who you said, you told me, was a doctor. Yes, that's true. He was a veterinarian, Okay, uh, but hired by the uh, United States government to go buy cattle or basically oh, check, right. check the was, cattle. That's right. Yeah, See, cattle for yeah. the for the cattle coming from Mexico into the U.S., which the U.S. was purchasing the cattle. For the insurgency they were backing. Right. I think, yeah, during, this is the Mexican Revolution we're talking about. So 1913, 1914. And so to kind of funnel a little money their way, they were purchasing this cattle. But of course, regulations were in place at that time that they couldn't be diseased. This and that can't be infecting the, uh, the U.S. stock. So they send Irwin down to go to go check this. Now, he... Irwin Ruth. Irwin Ruth. Uh, the son of Adolf Ruth, and Erwin meets up uh, – well, he's got a lot of friends down there already. He speaks the language. That's why they sent him. He's very familiar with the culture. He's comfortable there, and he has a lot of uh, you know prominent friends. But one ended up in jail for insurrection, which they were summarily shooting people, much like Maxie. Yes. <laughs> they, you know, they didn't stand for that much, so – this guy, and, and again, I, was, I want to say here, this is the great start of a great legend, as yes. they all do. Yes. The map. Right. Mapa. He sees a friend of his who's going to firing squad, who's going to be executed. Right. And he requests a little time with him. Right? Yes. And what, during this time, the guy says, I'm, I'm a goner here. My, uh, my time is short. Could you do me one big favor? My wife and kids, please take them out of Mexico because they're not going to fare well once I'm, once I'm dead. Please get them to Texas. And in reward, I have no money, really, but I have this map, yeah. a secret treasure map of these these mines that are very from the Peralta family, because this now goes back yeah, to that. Go so with the Peraltas again. You're, you're, you know, it's a good anchor. And um, so the guy says, well, you know, I'm not much interested in maps. But he takes the map, and of course he, the guy gets executed, his friend, Juan Gonzalez, and he gets Mr. Gonzalez's family to Texas and sets them up there. So they're fine. They're, they're safe. They're, they're out of harm's way. And, uh, of course, his friend gets, gets killed, and he goes back to the U.S., and he's got these maps. Now, he really, I guess, is not very interested in looking for lost treasure, but his father takes an interest in the maps. Yes. So Adolf takes an interest in the maps and decides that he's going to go and find out where this gold mine is, which leads him into the territory of the Superstition Mountains. Well, first, though, what happens now, I think this is a little important part of the story, is that uh, I think 
I think there are several mines on these maps. There's not a lot of detail on this, but one is the Lost Peg Leg Mine in the Anzo Borrego Desert here in Southern California. Oh, right. Which is very unforgiving territory in itself. So he convinces his son, like, hey, let's go on a road trip. No, we're just getting away. We're not going to do anything crazy. But, you know, we're talking in the Northeast here, so out of Washington, D.C., and back then, imagine, that's a long road trip in a yeah. rickety car. Yeah. Uh, so they, they take their time. They come all the way down here. And he tells his son, like, well, actually, we're going to go looking for this lost mine. And his son is furious. You know, like, hey, you tricked me. I didn't want to go do this. Uh, but dad says, well, don't worry about it. And finally, you know, he didn't speak to his dad for a couple of days. But, they, they, you know, there's no one else to talk to. So he warms up. They end up going to Anza Borrego and following the map. Just as they get there at sundown, uh, dad goes wandering off on a trail, and uh, as you know, as they oh, were saying, yes. like what happens? Back. Not that evening, and the guy's he's panicking because, like, look, if you go driving around, he comes back, he's not going to find the car. He doesn't know what to do, so he and you can't find him anyway. It's dark, so he's going to wait till morning. And dangerous, and, and dangerous. So he uh, morning comes, still no sign of dad, and I think it was like four days later. He go, he he backtracks and finds a uh, a rancher who's sympathetic to his his cause here and wants to go help him find his dad. They go searching. They find him in a ravine, and he's broken his hip. He's he's suffering from massive dehydration and yeah, uh, probably sunstroke and exposure. But he he yells out, "I found it!" Yes. Now, the, in the article we read doesn't ever explain what he found, yeah. but it was very cryptic. I'm not sure he ever said that. Uh, maybe not. But it's a good again. It's a good part of the legend. Yes. So then, uh, a few years later, though, I think he he eventually gets down to. Another uh, the mine. superstition area, yes. yes, because that's the mother load here. Now his son really is not—he's not falling for that. So, but he lets his dad go. His dad goes anyway, and yes. uh, and he drives down there all the way himself across the country. Marches into the ranch. The I think it's the Barkley Ranch or the yes, yes. Yeah. There's so the Barkley Ranch. There is a is a famous way way stop. Everybody goes there. Uh, yeah. It's the barbershop. Prospectors and uh, ranchers and cowboys are all hanging out there. They can grab a good meal. Uh, the yeah, he was very hospitable. Now, here's a little interesting thing. So this guy goes there, and he, and he breaks the first rule. He goes, guess what, guys? I'm looking I'm looking for lost treasure in this. And they're like, why? Wow. I have a the, treasure map. Yeah, I have a treasure map. Guess who's sitting in the room? Well, one interesting name that you'll hear from uh, from a moment ago when we, when we mentioned it, one guy there is Brownie Holmes. Brownie Holmes. His dad is Richard or Dick Holmes, who was one of the two guys with Jacob Waltz near his deathbed. Yes. And what a connection. Brownie, by the way, famously said himself that his dad was a shyster. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> and, you, yeah. Wow. Where'd you see that? I read it in oh. some of our, our – I don't. I feel like I've read a thousand yeah. books in the well, past Well, exactly. <laughs> but yes. Yeah. But you know what? There's no accounting Temporary for Temporary experts. <laughs> this will be Don't gone. ask me about this in, in a few months. Two hours from now, this will be all flushed <laughs> out. He wants to go looking for this thing. Mr. Barkley, though, knows that this, is, this guy's going to die. One – uh, he broke his hip on that earlier Anza Borrego trip. And this will figure yeah. a little prominently later. But he had a he had a steel plate put in his hip, and and he walked with a terrible limp. This guy is not ambulatory. He is not going to make it. He doesn't uh, need to be going up to Weaver's Needle. It's July. Yeah. It's 110 yeah. uh, up there. So uh, he says flat out no. But he said I'll tell yeah, you. We would what, say yeah. it's 110 in the shade, but there's not any shade. <laughs> there's no shade. There's a there's saguaro cactus, uh, which are giant, but it's inhospitable. So anyway, he takes off for a trip to Phoenix, and he thinks he's going to like, you know, when I come back, I'll, I'll take you a little ways in. And he figures like by that time, that guy's going to cool off. He's going to forget about this. After spending a week here uh, in this area, it's he's going to feel the heat, literally. Yeah. Uh, however, two, uh, once he leaves, uh, two, cow, two younger cowboys who are kind of listening in on the whole thing decide like, well, you know what? We'll take you as far as we can take it where you need to go near this spring. We'll set yeah, up by, camp. By the way, he's, pa- he's painted as being very insistent. 
you know. Yeah, like, he's annoying. That's the, the other thing yeah. that Barkley, uh, this guy was obnoxious. And because, again, it's the treasure hunting. It's the gold bug. It's the treasure hunting vibe you get. You just, you're obsessed. Yeah. You can't let it go. And uh, he's, you know, and he's getting towards the end of his life. He, I think it's the last hurrah for him. He wants to find this. He's been stewing about it for 10 years now. So so they take him up yeah. there. They pack him in on some horses, I think, at this point, And they carry him up there and drop him off. Yeah. They come back to the Barkley Ranch. Barkley comes back from his business trip, which he was convinced that Adolph would have changed his mind by then. Yeah. And it's like, where is he? <laughs> we like, we oh, dropped we, him off. We took him up there. Yeah. We're like, what? So yeah. he goes up there to try and rest. Can't find any trace of him or his camp. And doesn't find him. Six months later, yes, according to this one particular article, the Arizona Republic sponsored an archaeological expedition into the Superstition Mountain to locate ancient Indian ruins rumored to exist in the wild outback. Among this group were photographers from three different newspapers. Uh, by the way, this is from a website called America Down Under. On a page about Adolf Ruth, we'll have a link to it. You can find it on our website. Among this group were photographers from three different newspapers, an archaeologist named Odds Halseth and Brownie Holmes as their guide. Yeah, he knows the area. So they had a dog. Here's something that goes back to an earlier yeah. episode of <laughs> yeah. our show. Oh, very much so. Yeah. Uh, Ollie the crime-fighting dog. One yeah. of the, Well, you know what, Ollie? The crime-fighting dog found a human head on a hiking trail here in Los Angeles in a, a few years ago. In a shopping bag, I think, yeah. <laughs> Yes. Well, I guess Holmes' dog or somebody's dog on this trip found a human head on the trip, and they found a skull with what they say is clearly a gunshot wound to it, a big gunshot wound. It was the skull, according to Brownie Holmes, he instantly identified it by the long brow it had, I guess, because Adolf Ruth had a long brow, as being the skull of Adolf Ruth. The body was nowhere to be seen. Right. They wouldn't find that for another four months. Yeah. And I believe that was found by Mr. Barkley there. He he, uh, he was in a high ravine and uh, I think a half a mile away. So some good distance. Now, again, a, a, with a corpse decaying, animals often will carry off parts of bodies that they can they can uh, scavenge. Yeah, but how do they get a hole in that? I mean, I guess it, maybe the, if a, if they no, no. dropped it while it was carrying it. No, 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 no. I be- <laughs> no, I believe he was shot <laughs> because yeah, okay. that's a you, you know you have an entry wound that matches up with a caliber uh, but the size do, of caliber. Do animals overbold. scavenge heads really? Wouldn't they scavenge the body? Oh, maybe the body. Maybe he was all there originally, and something dragged the body somewhere else. Uh, possibly, but an animal walk off with a head. Hey, it's full of juicy brains. I'm not. I'm not kidding either. I mean, uh, that's pretty gruesome. But yeah. but the brains are full of. They have, there's a lot of fat in there. Yeah. Uh, they're nutritious. And uh, I don't, don't say know. delicious. I didn't. I no. People eat them though. There's uh, brain tacos and whatnot. Anyway, not to gross everyone out, um, but it's too late. <laughs> but uh, no, it was obviously these, this guy was shot through the head, uh, through yeah. the side of the temple there, and his head ended up half a mile away from his body. Now, when they found the skeleton, they knew it was him. Why? Because he had, had that plate. steel plate in his hip. Yes. Yeah. And they found his journal. In his journal were written the following words. It lies within an imaginary circle whose diameter is not more than five miles and whose center is marked by Weaver's Needle, about 2,500 feet high, among the confusion of lesser peaks and mountains, masses of basaltic rock, the first gorge on the south side from the west end of the range. Beneath this, Ruth had added vini vidi vici, which means in Latin, I came, I saw, I conquered. And below this was written about 200 feet across from the cave. So apparently Adolf Ruth thinks he conquered, even though he was decapitated and his body was separated. And it's like when he fell in the ditch the first time and he said, I found it. 
<laughs> yeah. it's, it's sad. Anyway, he was detached. That was 1931. Coming back to the timeline of deaths, we have several more. I can't even go through all of them. Uh, there was a prospector who died in 1938, found dead with a sack of gold at his side. 1948, treasure hunter James Cravey, age 62, found dead in the superstitions. Body, his body was discovered first, six months later, his skull. 1949, James Kidd, vanished in superstitions and never seen again. 1951, Dr. John Burns, what is it with these doctors? Well, you got, you got some money, you got some time. Was found with a bullet hole through him. Even though there were no powder burns, a ballistic expert testified the shot had been from some distance. The coroner ruled the death accidental or suicide. 1952, Joseph Kelly, native of Ohio, went in the superstitions, vanished. Two California youths also disappeared in the mountains that year. 1955, Charles Massey, hunting in the superstitions with a 22 rimfire, found dead, having been shot between the eyes with a heavy caliber bullet. Coroner ruled death accidental, a result of ricochet. Okay, you know what, little quick thing? That K- KGC coroner. <laughs> yeah, it makes me a little <laughs> suspicious, like, no, no, accident. Uh, if this is true, if these are reported correctly and accurately, it does seem a little suspicious that uh, maybe they had put a plant in there who was a little sympathetic. 1956, Martin Zwytho, native of New York, found dead, bullet hole in his right temple. Gun found beneath the body, death ruled a suicide. 1959, Benjamin Ferreira killed his friend and partner Stanley Hernandez after they discovered what they thought was gold. It was pyrite, otherwise known as fool's gold. Right. 1960, another beheaded skull discovered in the superstitions. This one with two bullet holes in it. Skull turned out to be the remains of Franz Harrer, a student from Austria. Also this year, the skeletal remains of William Harvey Jr. were found, cause of death unknown. 1961, children discovered the skeletal remains of Hilmer Bowen, who had been shot through the head. At this point, Walter Mowry's bullet-ridden body was found, cause of death ruled suicide. 1963, Vance Bacon probably related to Kevin, a hired man working for Celeste Mary Jones, a woman who had a claim on the top of Weaver's Needle, fell to his death from the top of the needle. According to some sources, there were rifle shots heard and some indications of foul play. Keeps going. Elderly couple found murdered in their car in 64. Charles Lewing shot Ladislas Guerrero in self-defense at the Robert Crazy Jake Jacobs campsite. 1976, Howard Poling killed by a gunshot. 77, Dennis Brown, gunshot. 1978, Manuel Valdez, murdered. 1984, Walt Gassler. This is another one of the more famous ones. Lifelong searcher for the Lost Dutchman mine was found dead in the superstitions. In his pack was found gold ore identical to that from under the deathbed of Jacob Waltz, which they do have pictures of. That's Mm -hmm. how they would know that. I've seen the pictures. And even more recently, this one was not on Oro Blanco's list, but I found it myself just the other day. November 29th, 2012, there was an article written in the Denver Post about a man, a Denver bellhop, who had gone into the Arizona Superstition Mountains determined to find the lost Dutchman's mine. Jesse Capen, 35, had made finding the hidden treasure an obsession filled by more than 100 books and maps on the legendary mine named for German immigrant, the Dutchman Waltz. We call them Dutch hunters out here, said Superstition Search and Rescue Director Robert Cooper. They're infatuated with all the lore and the history of the Lost Dutchman Mine, and he was part of that. The body was found in a crevice roughly 35 feet up a cliff face in the southern portion of the Superstitions, near the 4,892-foot Tortilla Mountain. So this guy was obsessed with it, 
people at his hotel, I guess, knew this and said they were sad that he was gone. It just keeps going. People keep going. Yeah. People keep dying. Now, he wasn't shot. Maybe people are done getting shot. Well, well, you know, that's an interesting thing to think about because the shootings start, what, 1847-ish? Yeah. (laughs) And continue on into the 70s and 80s at least. And I don't know if there's anything current here. Maybe people are starting to learn the lesson. So 120 years. Yeah, it's not one guy. (laughs) Let's put forth a theory, though. Yeah. I mean, some of these guys, we know they went up there because they said that they went up there and their friends knew they went up there. Some of these bodies that turn up up there, it could be kind of like Angelus Crest. Maybe some bad guys in Phoenix are killing them and then dumping them up there. Uh, Possibly, yes. You would think it would be easier place to go because, uh, again, it's 110. But you're you're, going to dry out pretty quickly here. But I think the pattern that we're seeing is that people who are poking around and maybe getting too close get visited. By whom? We don't know. But it seems like somebody who's definitely willing to kill to protect whatever's there if they find it. Now, another thing that uh, my friend John said who grew up there, he said he remembers growing up all throughout the 80s that you would continually hear these news stories. Some guy claims to have found it. They get the news crew up there and it's nothing. It's like, I I can't find it again. Or it turned out to be like, again, it's iron pyrite. It's fool's gold. There were so many letdowns, but so many people have claimed to have found it. And at the end of this article says that more than 100,000 people have gone looking for it. Uh, Over 300 have claimed to have found it, but nobody has really found it. Now, I do believe that people have gotten close. That's my, my personal belief is that these people aren't just getting shot by accident. It's not all suicides. If these are all really gunshot wounds to the head... There's somebody up there who's good with a rifle. So now we come forward to the current day, and let's come back to Bob Brewer for a bit Yeah, as we get towards the end of this show and talk about what happened to Bob when he got involved with the Superstition Mountains. Let's look at all the connections that might exist. Elisha Rivas is connected to a KGC operative, J.A. Rivas. They are blood. We know that, or at least we personally found that on Ancestry.com. Granted, we were looking at some pretty big family trees that were flushed out by people who may or may not be professionals, but the trees themselves were very realized. They looked like trees that had had a lot of research go into them to me because I've seen the trees that get slapped together, and I've seen the ones that look real. And I'm saying that there's a blood connection between Elisha Marcus Rivas, the hermit of the Superstition Mountains, and James Addison Rivas of the Barony of Arizona scam. I would go with that. Also, it's not a very common name. You know, if we were yes. talking about Mr. Jones, then that's something else. Yes. There could be a thousand different Jones. It's the same what they say about uh, my family name is that probably somewhere along the line, we're all related. Everyone with that last name. Yes. Uh, I think they said that about your last name as well. If you go back far enough, it happens. So here it's, it's quite a coincidence that they're kind of in the same area and possibly are tied in with the same cause. Yes, exactly. We're going to remind you that James Addison Rivas tried to take over a huge piece of Arizona through a giant con. Exactly. And nobody knows how he got funded for that in his 10-year quest to pull off this scam. That was the long... The long con? Yeah, the long con. <laughs> it was a Thank long you. ways in. find the phrase. Yes, yeah. the long con. So, but yeah. with big reward for someone or some group. Now, we've also shown for a fact that Jacob Waltz had gold in his possession. Right. And there's some debate over the quality of it or the type that it was. We've read that it was gold-bearing quartz. Some, In some cases, we've read that it's high ore, which indicates a bigger vein, right? That was the kind of thing that you were talking about. If it- well, we don't know where he got it. He never lived up on the mountain himself, but very close by. Okay. So, and then lastly, 
let's let's look at this theory. Was Waltz himself a KGC operative? This is something that Warren Gettler and Bob Brewer put forward in their book, Shadow of the Sentinel, which there's so much juicy information in this book. It's a really great read if you're into this story. We highly recommend that you pick up Shadow of the Sentinel or the book Rebel Gold. The two of them, I believe, are pretty much identical, just republished with a different title. They, you don't need them both because they're the same, but you need one or the other of them. You should check them out because they are – it's really fascinating. There's a lot more details than what we're able to share here in this <laughs> ostensibly short podcast. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, what I wanted to say was that um, Waltz had actually declared his intent to become a U.S. citizen. He signed some paperwork in Natchez, Mississippi. Natchez is home of one of the most famous KGC men of all time who we mentioned before in our earlier parts – High-ranking Scottish Rite Mason, John Anthony Quitman. Natchez is also a primary southern headquarters for the KGC, second only to Charleston. Now, the man we mentioned in part two as being famously in that portrait with the KGC symbol on the blanket on his horse under the saddle, that is John Anthony Quitman. So we know that he is a KGC member. We know that he lived in Natchez, and we know the KGC had a headquarters there, and we know that that is the place in which Jacob Waltz declared his intent to become a U.S. citizen. Now, to your point earlier, Forrest, if the KGC were recruiting people from overseas, it fits with the timeline of let's go find – here's this guy who's a mining engineer. We've got this thing going on out in the West. We need to get him out there because we have things that we need to get done out there. Let's bring him back here. He goes to Quitman's stomping grounds. He declares his citizenship, eventually winds up in California, and then strangely moves to Arizona where the superstitions are. This pattern of recruitment was laid down by J. Frank Dalton, passed on to Orvis Lee Houck. Jesse James III, the co-author of Jesse James, was one of his names. Right. As how, Same guy. Right. It's how they got people, qualified people, mind you, overseas to come to the United States and set up a new life. And they felt indebted in a way, not like they've been given a task, but... So you already these people are, are kind of indebted to you for setting them up with good jobs right. after they pass a probation uh, time. You of got three, me my work years. visa. How can I repay you? Yeah, well, <laughs> just for the rest of your life, you'll yeah. be you'll be a hermit or growing uh, vegetables up in this mountain area. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm talking about Elisha Rebus, <laughs> yeah. but Jacob fits that profile. And here's another little factoid: after he got his citizenship, then you're allowed to file a mining claim. He went in with uh, uh, some partners here. I believe sometime after 1863, maybe September of that year, one of Waltz's big mining claims was called Big Rebel in the Prescott-Bradshaw region. That's right. I forgot so, about that. So again, there's all these little clues. And you'll see this pattern of how Bob finds these things that he does. And, and what he does is he finds landmarks that have some KGC symbolism or Masonic symbolism or something that, that points to things that he's been finding around his own Arkansas home there. And then you need a map of the time, and you need a topographic map from the from that era would be 1850s into 1870s, 1880s, and then you need a reference point, and you need to know the scale. So what he's able to do, though, that's the, why he's the able reference to reference point is the secret. That's yeah, what makes it. Exactly. You don't have that, you're at sea. No, no. Then you're looking at hundreds of thousands of square miles of nothing and nothing to uh, to line that up with. The thing about Jacob Waltz is that although he never went really and lived in the mountains like Elisha did, he was close by and he would go off for long periods of time. I think in the winter, nobody knows why. He would just kind of take trips up there. And one time he had a group of Mexican laborers working for him. That's right. He didn't, it wasn't to fix up the ranch. They were staying at at the ranch too. Yeah, they were staying there 
but he was going off with them to do some kind of other work. So cut to today, word has gotten out about Bob Brewer and the treasure hunting community, and a wealthy Florida investor has called Bob and asked him to take a look at something he's considering investing in called the Heart Mountain Project, and he wants Bob to vet it for him. So Bob gets involved with this investor. He actually invites that investor out to visit him at his home, and he shows him some of the things that he's that we talked about in part one around in Arkansas, where he found the coins. He talks about the wolf map, all the work he did on that, and the systems that he's uncovered. And the investor's pretty well impressed, so he puts Bob in touch with the partners at the Heart Mountain Project, who want to know who Bob is, too. If we're going to have another guy coming in here, we got to make sure he's the real deal. Bob, of course, impresses them, too. So they welcome him into their project. Bob gets a hold of all their documentation, all the things they have. They have, at this point, I think this is the first time that Bob gets exposed to the Peralta Stones. I'm, I'm almost positive of that. Yeah. The, he, the, he wasn't familiar with them. Right. They send him a giant packet of information. And it's a dossier. Photo, it really is a dossier. It's yeah. full of uh, maps, topographical, photographs. One thing I wanted to point out that's mysterious about the Peralta Stones or the, the uh, Superstition Mountain Stone Tablets, as they call them, is that there was a really interesting tidbit here because when Bob gets these stones, he notices that the photos that he gets are different than the one he receives from the widow of a treasure hunting buddy who'd passed away. His, he, gets, he gets some documents that he was working on from this uh, gentleman's wife, this friend of his. Yes. And he noticed there's some discrepancies. Now, what's interesting about that is that it could be that people have sanded off some clues. Yes. But he which swears. happens all the time. Yeah. People yeah. make changes once they fi- think they've got it figured out. They change, which Bob never did. And we mentioned that before. Even when he dug up an artifact, he always put it back exactly the way he found it. Now, he's very respectful. Plus, you're never going to find these clues again. Yeah. But what we were talking about earlier is that it's like with the Peralta Stones. You, you need markers. You need directional signals that he finds within these visual clues. Then you apply that to a map of the time. And then you can draw your lines, right. your lines of search. So they have this map that he's looking at, and he starts to try to sit down with, a lot like the wolf map, which, as we mentioned in part two, Bob spent over a 1,000 hours solving, only to be betrayed by his treasure hunting teacher partner on that one, who made off with so much money, he had a noticeable lifestyle change afterwards. So there are some clues on the map that they have, which is like you said, I pasture north of the river, and we didn't know whether that was the Gila or the Gila River or the Salt River, but... What kind of things pasture? Horses? Oh, right. When Bob looks at this stuff, he just sees the solution. Not immediately, but he knows that he has the knowledge to put it all together. Well, he knows what to look for in a map. But keep in mind, he's pouring over these maps for hours, for days, for weeks, for months. His wife is bringing him sandwiches. He's but he's taking stuff to the bathroom with him. Yeah, you know, you and me, we take our iPhone. <laughs> it's a, he's in there with like a treasure map. Yeah, I yeah. don't, I don't actually. Know. No, but uh, it takes a knowledgeable eye, but you still have to spend the time. And even with this knowledge, what he's looking for in these topographical maps are things that relate to the imagery. If there's a horse on the tablet, he thinks he might be able to find that within the topographical map. There should be something that relates to that. And then once you find that that uh, that pinpoint center, you start triangulating. You find other things that match the up. The markers yeah. that you need. And this is the thing. He knows he, – he, he is certain that there's a horse somewhere right? based on the clues. And you've got to read the book if you want more specifics on this. But eventually, he's pouring over the topo maps. These are USGS, U.S. Geological Survey topographical maps. 
From the eight from the eighteen fifties on. Yes. Yeah, from the eighteen fifties on, and he suddenly thinks that he sees a horse's eye in the topo patterns. Yeah. Then he he pulls back from that and he starts to realize more of a horse, the outline of a horse in the topo. What's fascinating about this, it's not that that's not real topo because it is real topo information, but yeah. it also has an implication that the KGC had people at the USGS and that they were all working in concert together. This is a high-level penetration in government documents of a long-time permanent clue that will last for hundreds of years, if not more. It's of a time that's earlier because you can't see this stuff from the ground. Now, certainly there are things that were man-made and carved into rock faces, large things. Looking down at this map, you can kind of triangulate these shapes. And what Bob is discovering is that the reason that he's finding stuff is because he's right. He's, he's in the ballpark. Yes. Because there are markers then on the ground that point to where these are hidden. Now, keep this in mind. This is a long-term plan by the KGC. They knew that it was not going to be next year. It could be 20 years from now. It could be 50 years from now. A long time. So you want something permanent. You want it in the ground. And that clues may be forgotten. And certainly I believe that's the case. Some small caches have probably been forgotten about. When people have died like Bob's Uncle Odie. Exactly. Before they got to pass on yeah. the information. But the bigger ones, those are on the grander scale. And certainly that's what we were talking about before, about Jesse James lost gold, the things that were stolen, things that they know are missing, that he didn't go out and buy a million-dollar mansion. The New Orleans Mint. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. Gone. It, yeah. It's unaccounted for. So it's squirreled away somewhere. But the plan is that these clues would be left for future generations that may not have all the information. So they'll need a little help. So with these maps, with the clues, and certainly these are some are cryptic. Some of them might be for subterfuge, diversion. Like uh, there's one, the one of the sayings on the map was, "This trail is very dangerous. I go to 18 places. Look for the heart, or right. search for the map. Search for the map. So, but the heart, if that's if you know what that means, that gives you okay. Now it's like with Bob. He knows what these things mean. I'm not saying this is in yeah. the book, but maybe the heart is the symbol for the ultimate marker, the marker that makes it all make sense, the marker that tells you where to put the template. Maybe it's the heart of the map. Maybe it's figurative. Right. Right. Or maybe it's literal. Maybe it's the heart in the Peralta Stones. But Bob said that Peralta Stones, he felt that they were made prior to the year that was indicated on them, that yeah. that was something to throw it off, and also that they were an assistance to decoding what was happening in the superstition region but not required to get to the bottom of it if you had the level of knowledge that Bob had. Right. See, that's the thing. Bob has not gotten the original knowledge. He's not been told exactly where they were and needs a refresher. He's starting from zero just on his own accumulated knowledge and study, and he's figured these things out. But it's taken him many, many years to do that. And what's so impressive is it's like every other project that he's been involved in. Guys come in the door, and even these guys, there was one of them, one of the partners – who was one of those zealots that's just like, let's go get it. So we can go get it. It's right there, oh, right? That was the Florida guy. Yeah. Who, he can tell, look, look, it, there's, it, you get the bug. Yes. And he was thinking like, well, this will just take a day, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, and which is, no, it's not going to be that. But it's, you know what? It looks, sounds like Robert Dunfield. Yes. Had some money, comes in there like, look, you know, with some heavy machinery, I'll get this out in a week. Uh, Forrest is making a reference to Oak Island and a man known as Dunfield the Destroyer. You're, right, your moniker, sure. Yeah. But he was a, the, he was a geologist. That was not my yeah. moniker. That really? Was, no, no. I did not come up with that. Oh, good one, though. But that was... Oh, wait. Yeah. Yes, I did. I, 
<laughs> See, temporary experts. I've already forgotten my own phrase that I coined. Yes, and more permanent amnesia. But yeah. <laughs> uh, what it is, though, it's that attitude that Bob can see with some of these treasure hunters. As we mentioned before, he can see it in people that are, my way is the right way. Yes. I know what I'm doing. You don't. But, or, yeah, it's like coming in and saying, like, well, this will be easy, right? You just put the line these things up, we boom, we dig it up. We right, it. and but the, and that in this case that's the investors. But the two guys, the other two guys that were the Heart Mountain Project, who had to reach out to the Florida guy to get the money. Yeah, they're pretty level headed. They're a lot more like Bob, and they're coming to that realization that everyone who works with Bob comes to, which is like, oh yeah, we don't know anything. We yeah. didn't even know we were onto this. And Bob starts driving them around out in the desert. He's like, wait, stop the car here. Stop here. They get out. By the, this, by the way, reminds me of when Petter Amundsen visited Oak Island in the boat and rolled out into the swamp and put a pole down in the water and you could hear a hollow box. It was amazing. That was on the Curse of Oak Island. More on that next year. But anyway, <laughs> yeah. he gets out of the car. They're following these lines. They know that when they follow Bob, they're going to find something. At one point, Bob looks up and they see this huge star. A five-pointed star carved into the side of the mountain – which is, I, I think it's a, it's about 600 to 900 feet across. Yes. It's not just somebody with a chisel and a hammer. This is multiple groups of men hanging off a cliff. With ropes. With yeah. ropes carving this into the side of a mountain. And you can't even really see it unless you get way back away from it. Right. And those are echoes of Oak Island, if you believe any of that, that this is a major endeavor by some very dedicated people. And also we come back to the Mexican laborers that were living on oh, sure. Waltz's land. Yeah, maybe they had some involvement in that. A, a team of hardworking guys yeah. uh, paid probably a decent wage. We're like, well, all right, we'll, we'll do that. To make a pretty picture on yeah, the cliff. Yeah. yeah, but there's some landscaping where they notice, uh, I think that was another heart in the side of the base of the mountain where they noticed that the shape, the massive shape, and this one is like 900 feet across, I think, uh, had been cleared of vegetation and boulders and rocks and replaced with quick-growing shrubs. Shrubs, not native to the area, but when the spring rains came and it's up, so it's cool enough up there, you suddenly got a nice big green patch making a heart. So it's Look visible. Look for the heart. Look for the heart. Well, there you go. So it, it, there's an elaborate plan. It is so well thought out. So now we come down to the overall theory that the Superstition Mountain itself and the whole legend of the Lost Dutchman Mine may be a cover story for a KGC cache, possibly maybe even the biggest one in the country, after the right. Wolf Map cache, which Bob got screwed out of. So then you have to wonder, Bob Brewer and Warren Gettler put forth the idea in their book that Waltz was a KGC sentinel, and probably Elisha Rivas was too, and that all the stories about the Superstition Mountain, the Peralta thing may have just been apocryphal, the Sombrero Mine, the, the Lost Dutchman Mine, all of this stuff may have simply been a cover story to guard this cash and to give these men a reason to go in and out of there who were on their own payroll. Their paycheck was rough ore, which there's no reason to believe the KGC wouldn't have been able to access this ore. Or maybe all of this is made up. This is a giant conspiracy are you guys crazy? I'm not listening to this podcast anymore. It's all pseudo history. There's <laughs> right. no confirmation of this. There's all these suppositions. Oh, yeah, right. You guys keep saying the KGC existed. Big deal. How can you say any of these people were actually in it? Well, I guess I would agree with all of that and that assessment of that, except for what happened when Bob took the Heart Mountain Project guys up into the superstitions and got really close on the trail. Keep in mind, 
Bob is finding things. And that's how he gets these two guys from the Heart Mountain Project, Gardner and McLeod, to go along with him. One, they are of a similar uh, temperament and that they're respectful of history. They're really more into solving the riddle than, you know, strictly financial gain, although that's a bonus. But that's really hard to to make a claim on. So what they're seeing and what can be laid down as fact is that Bob's method works or seems to. He's finding things. Yeah, he finds them. He, like I said, he stops the car. He's like, wait, we got to stop here. Yeah. Wait, what, what, why are you stopping? He walks out a hundred yards from the dirt road and picks up a rock and there's a heart carved into it. Or yeah, he just finds it. Every- right. There was a, uh, there was a star made out of unspent shotgun shells. shotgun shells making the star right where Bob thought there should be something. And they're like, how'd you do that? Well, what he's doing is that he's made the calculations. He's just following these lines. And he figured out, by the way, that, like I said, I think you should get the book. I don't want to spoil it. Right. But there was something central to the map that allowed him to orient everything and really get onto the the heels of what could be this huge cache. And he found it. He figured that out. And then he just started reeling stuff in all over the place. And by stuff, I mean clues, not money. We're going to get to the money part in a second. But It would be impossible just to guess at this and find stuff. From small caches to larger ones, he's got a methodology – built on all this study, years of it. And when he finds something, it generally leads to something else. Because it, when you look at it, that's the way that these things are found out in kind of a spider web pattern, which he's seen over and over again. You have a central area with maybe the biggest cache. That's not going to be easily dug up with just two guys and a shovel. We're talking stuff that might be in a tunnel or a pit that's 30 mine. to 40 feet down. Yes. You know, it's well, a you know, booby trapped, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. Possibly uh, booby-trapped with explosives, that sort of thing. But in, in the spiraling pattern, we talked about this before. You have a lot of different operatives and what they could envision happening when the time came to need these, that individuals may need a, a certain amount of cash to go buy guns and ammunition and provisions. And the larger organization as a whole, with much more men and uh, knowledge and, and uh, manpower there, could go access these larger caches yes. to get some real buying power. Yes. Right. So anyway, there's a bunch, there's all kinds of treasure buried out there, small to huge. Right. So they start getting closer and closer and closer to it. And they're closing in on starting to figure out where actual treasure points might be. And Bob takes those two partners out and he says, you know what, we need to do some metal detecting here in this area. And he turns to one of them and he says, get ready for company. And they're just like, what are, you, what are you talking about? Now, you've got to keep in mind, Bob has been threatened numerous times all over the country when he starts to get close to things. He even has a theory that somehow they can tell when a metal detector is turned on or when a metal detector gets near some kind of sensor that alerts them to his presence. Well, now, this yeah. sounds like real tinfoil hat territory, and it would be if nothing happened. <laughs> right. Well, you know what? That's not far-fetched. The, uh, the U.S. Border Patrol uses seismic sensors. They know when people walk by a certain area. That's what they're, you know, they're used to kind of protect the border as much as they can. Yeah. But what happens is that movement of the ground, your stomping creates a, a little shockwave that gets picked up. When you turn on a metal detector and a ground loop signal goes out, that can also be picked up by detectors. And that's the reason that Bob got the idea that Maybe something was tripped here because... So they get out. He tells them they're going to have company. He he turns on the metal detector, and in about 20 minutes, they get buzzed at a low altitude by a civilian helicopter. It takes a first pass, circles back around with a second pass with a guy hanging out of it so far they're worried he's going to fall out, staring down at them as they are 
kind of checking things out. Yeah, this is not just a news helicopter. They look, Bob. Again, Bob was in the Navy in Vietnam. He in that role, hanging out of the uh, the sliding door of the helicopter. He knows what that looks like, and he said the guy was so intently looking at them, he almost fell out. So that unnerves the team there of three. They're, you know, Bob. He's kind of used to that, but now he's wary. He knows that someone is watching, someone is observing. Someone or some group. Someone with sophisticated technology and a fair amount of money. Right, because that's not cheap. That, this that, is 1998, yeah. by the way. Yeah. This is the late 90s we're talking about. Now, a few days later, there's another incident. Now, they're about 30 miles north from the first site, poking around at another site that Bob has, has picked out on the map due to the symbols and the measurements on the topographic map. He's strapped at this point, by the way. No, he's got a 357. He's got a 357. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know what? It's a good idea out there anyway because there's a lot of snakes, and usually uh, guys will use a snake shot, which is a tiny little uh, – it's like a little shotgun shell. But it's dangerous out there. Yeah. And so uh, I think all three guys, or maybe just the two uh, the two guys of Bob's team here, are, are packing heat. So Bob finds – now this definitely reminded me of a photo that we have up for the Oak Island uh, series there. He finds a large – carved skull that has eyes and a brow a furrowed brow and it's looking off into a direction see this is the other thing these markers usually point to something yes to aid you in finding whatever your, your the ultimate goal is the treasure site so but what happens again after finding this skull this carved skull looking out in a specific direction that bob was interested in about 20 minutes later a blue bell helicopter comes for a pass yes. low level pass now, it, it spots them, and it goes over the ridge there, close by. And from Bob's experience, he can hear the rotors change pitch, f- going from flight to hover. So they're landing. And now you can bet that their ears are pricked up a little bit. The hairs in their arm are standing up. One of the two partners the hammer st- the, strap. Yes. The hammer strap on his holster. The thumb, yeah, the thumb they're strap. They're nervous. Look, they, they, they had a pass earlier. This has also happened to them before where other people have come by in cars on the ground and just kind of watch them from them. a distance. Exactly. Yeah. So they're a little wary. Now they are, especially this helicopter's landed. They don't know who's getting out. Now, over this little hill comes this, uh, he described him as kind of a, a burly, muscular man in his mid to late 50s. From the binoculars, I believe McLeod can see that uh, something is shiny in the sun there, and he's packing heat. He's got a shoulder holster. And There's a forty-four a, Magnum, right? Yeah, I believe when they when he walked up closer, they could see that it was a large caliber handgun. Yeah. And uh, he walks up, and there's a woman behind him, about late 30s to early 40s. But he, the guy does all the talking, and as Bob says, he gets right to the point. It's, what are you doing out here? Right. And Bob says, oh, we're, we're rock hounding. We're, you know. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> Bob's certainly the most common collected out of the three. But he says, leave all the talking to me. And he's just going to pose like, and this happens. Guys go out just rock hounding. Some even go metal detecting, but he's not, doesn't really want to say that because it sounds like you're looking. So he's, he's also waiting to see what the guy says because that'll be a big clue. Alternately, the other guy is waiting to see what he says. It's a little bit of stand-up. Who knows what? Why are you here? So that's all the guy says. Like, why, do you, why are you here? And, you know, Bob says, oh, we're looking for agate. We're, we're rock hounding. And they actually had some samples in their hand of this kind of opal-looking uh, rock. And the guy then just says, did you guys see a window rock? Again, that's a leading question. Which they had just seen. Yeah. <laughs> Meaning it's a, a rock that will utilize a line of sight to an area that you need to go to to dig something up. Indiana Jones type stuff. Exactly. A little bit like that, sure. And and uh, so Bob knows, like, don't. It's like, yeah, we're about to dig up a KGC treasure. No, it's 
he knows it's it's tense now. They're kind of like slowly making their way back towards the car. They don't want to be presented as a threat. Yeah. Now, if it comes down to it, they're going to they're gonna defend themselves. But they're not sure what this guy's intent was. And they see that this guy is eyeballing them up and down. There's two things. One, he could be just seeing like, it's Shane. He's, are you going to make a quick draw on me? And do I have to pull first? Bob thinks more likely he's getting a visual account of these guys. He can make a description later. Who are these guys? Do we have to worry about them? Are they possibly going to come back? He had no badge. He had no identification. Doesn't identify himself. Didn't offer to identify himself. No, he's not. Didn't say who he was, yeah. where he was from. Not, and the woman didn't say anything. No, no. Yeah, she's just hanging back about 10, 15 feet behind him on the trail. And uh, he's not offering anything. He just wants to know. And, and so Bob says, well, no, uh, what's that? You know, and, his, and he's got a lot of folksy down-home charm here. And he's just very deflective. And he says, no, we sur- sure didn't. We don't even know what that is. And the guy's, okay. And he, he, they, they nod to each other. The guys go over the hill. Helicopter takes off. And uh, you might think it's a coincidence, but they didn't notice any car on the way out either. These guys did not drive in. And uh, so what that tells you is that someone's watching. Someone's watching it to this day. Yes. Now, what would be amazing is if we had this super satisfying conclusion that a few weeks later, Bob and the partners in the Heart Mountain Project unearthed a multi-million dollar, hundred billion dollar Aztec (laughs) treasure or some other form of gold or all the contents of the New Orleans Mint inside a hole in the ground near the Superstition Mountains in Arizona. But the bottom line is, the further they went, Bob was able to pinpoint where he thought this mother load was, this cache, yeah. this giant cache. He was making good progress. Yeah. There were no issues with that, even in spite of the intimidation. The only problem is when he concluded where the final place was that they needed to check out, it was on BLM land. For those of you who have not camped or taken any trips out in the southwest of North America... BLM stands for the Bureau of Land Management. It's all that wild open space that really no one's in. Yes, or necessarily owns. Yes. Government owns it. Right. And they allow you to do what's called free-range camping, or you have to camp within 100 feet of a road. The road, yeah. It's amazing. There's rules. And it's beautiful, and it's Monument Valley, all these types of territories. This territory is where they think they need to go. The problem is the process of getting a permit to do any kind of treasure hunting or any kind of permit for pretty much anything beyond putting a tent and a fire up (laughs) is near impossible. Yeah, You're not going to be able to do it. However, they are pursuing those avenues. And the other feeling that I got from the book, which was was published several years ago, is that they didn't necessarily want to point out exactly where they thought this thing was. (laughs) Yeah. And they weren't necessarily going to talk about what their next step was. Yeah. But they are right on top of it. And Bob's still around. You can see yeah. he pops up every now and then in the news if you want to check and see what's going on with him. We can't for sure say what's going on with the Heart Mountain Project. But what we can say is that if anyone is going to find it or find this cash or get to the bottom of it, it's going to be Bob Brewer. It, he's the one with the dedication and the knowledge and really the drive, a lifelong legacy. It would be such a great conclusion. I mean, from him growing up and having his own family as part of probably this large conspiracy to hide treasure and uh, break off from the union down to him figuring out there was a gap there. You have to realize again, uncle Odie and grandpa Ashcraft passed away before they could probably make him the next sentinel in Arkansas. Bob's quest has taken him all the way across the country to Arizona but there is a definite connection there. 
And so where we're at here is that he's closing in, but it's kind of ironic. You mentioned this earlier in that the government's viewpoint is that we don't really want you to go looking for it. We don't really want you to find anything. But if you do, we want part of it or most of it. Yeah. Anything <laughs> they find, ironic. by the way, if they, anything yeah. they find on BLM land it has to be turned over. Yeah. And then you have to petition to get any part of it back. There are rules for state-owned land. There's rules for federal land. And neither of them are really that easy. It's, it's really made to be discouraging, I, I get the sense, in that you have to hire a state archaeologist if it's on state land. And all of these costs, by the way, have to be borne by you. And then if you want part of it later, you have to go petition the courts yeah, and some to of claim this, your share. Again, some of this stuff is coming up in Oak Island. The Canadian government is trying to change the rules up there and slow down what they're doing. And, yeah. you know, there's a pushback. They actually have way more freedom there than they would have if they were doing this in Arizona. They're a little more interested up there, I think. Uh, but yeah, they certainly want some of your money if you find anything. But that's the status now. Bob is still looking. So what are your conclusions on this one, Forrest? Well, you know, the more you read about this, certainly from the book, again, we highly recommend it. When you get towards the end, and especially the last, the epilogue here, you are, are reminded how much, at least I am, reminded how much this sounds like Oak Island. And not just the setup as far as, you know, stuff in the ground, obviously, laid by somebody with a clever mind. But what they're talking about is beyond the southern states' rights and secession and even slavery. We're talking about ideals that go further into the past. And we are talking about Knights Templar. We are talking about sacred geometry, codes, symbols, ciphers, precious artifacts, and because these same modes that people have discovered throughout the ages seem to be applied here. It's the same kind of thinking. You are finding the same artifacts. You are finding the carved skull, the shape of the heart with a dagger or near it or a line through it. You are finding shapes of priests and crucifixes and horses. It's, it's all of the same types of symbols. Now, not to say that, that those aren't just common images. Certainly they are. What you're seeing, though, are connections to philosophical and religious movements. These guys are borrowing Freemasonry. Well, first of all, a lot of them are Freemasons, so there's a connection there. Albert Pike, who we mentioned, traveled to Europe for a Rosicrucian conclave there during the Civil War. This is what's ironic to me, is that these are not the ideals, certainly, of Freemasonry and Rosicrucianism. But people who are in it are using the setup. You don't keep reinventing something if you don't have to. Here is a semi-secret organization that is using other secret organizations' methodology, symbols, codes, and ciphers. Why do this? Why keep this on for generation after generation and after generation to pass it down, the sacred knowledge? It's kind of like that Oak Island thing. That's a major undertaking of engineering and maybe a year or two years by 50 to 100 men living in rough winter conditions doing this year-round. Why do this? Because the idea that we're getting at is this is they feel they're a part of something bigger than themselves that will be proven out by history generations later. All I know is that in light of what's been happening to Bob Brewer and the mysteries that he has uncovered, we'd think twice about going on a search for the Lost Dutchman mine if we were you. Thank you so much for joining us for our series on the Knights of the Golden Circle. 2015 was a great year for us. Thanks very much to all of our listeners for making it that way. 
Happy Holidays and Merry Christmas to our listener, Amy, in Battersea. We'll be back in mid-January with a new show. Our theme was composed by Judson Crane, and our sound design is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to our head researcher, Tess Feifel. Most importantly, we want to thank our listeners. You can find us online at AstonishingLegends.com, as well as Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, Google+, and Instagram. Copyright Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. Good night. Your Total Wine & More store is ready to serve you with our always low prices on an incredible 8,000 wines and 2,500 beers. Want it today? Try our same-day delivery or contactless curbside pickup at TotalWine.com. Whether you're grabbing your favorite beer or pouring a glass to enjoy an evening on the deck, Total Wine & More has you covered. Visit any of our 12 stores in Northern Virginia, 